Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right. This week, we get to hear from another legend, maybe the most important music producer in Australian rock history, Mark Opitz. Now, you may or may not know Mark by name. I don't know. He's worked on a ton of stuff that you would know. But his sound, or really more his ears, defined an entire generation of rock music down under, specifically the 80s. So he really comes into prominence. His first big deal that you guys would all probably know is when he worked on the Power Age album in the mid-70s with ACDC. Shortly after that, he works on an album called Face to Face by an Australian band called The Angels. In America, they're called Angel City. That album became a landmark of Australian rock. It was huge. And that's really where he earned his bona fides and has never really looked back. He goes on to work with Cold Chisel, Divinals, In Excess. We talk a lot about In Excess in here. The Hoodoo Gurus, The Ocean Blue. There's even a lot of Kiss in here. It's so good. Uh, one of the bands that he worked with that I love that we didn't get around to talking about is this one right here, The Models. And this song is called Out of Sight, Out of Mind. I love this track. You may remember it. It, it was a pretty decent-sized hit in the late 80s all around the world. Well, he wrote a book about all of this stuff called Sophistapunk. And that's the label or the definition he's given his sound and his career. And it's really apt. Sophistapunk. And I bought it on Kindle for like $9.99. It's a great read. One thing I found while reading it, though, is how much about Australian music that I didn't know. I thought that I knew a lot about music. And I, you know, I do. I thought I was pretty well-rounded. But there is so much going on down there that I was not aware of that he had a hand in and is legendary for. Now, let me give you a little bit of a heads up. This conversation is long. It's very dense. It's very Australian-specific, just like the book. So there are probably several references in here that you may or may not get. Mark's Australian drawl is pretty thick. And so you may even have a hard time picking some things up if you're a yank like me. But I will promise you there are several excellent stories in here if you stick it out. Okay? Especially the Kiss and the NXS stories. And we talk a lot about the um, Lost Boys soundtrack, which you guys know I love to talk about that. This is a listener request. Paul Hicks recommended Mark, which was genius. I love talking to producers, and I've never had much luck getting them on the show. Other than Steve Thompson a few months ago, all the ones that I reach out to, I never hear back from. And so I kind of don't go after it anymore. But thanks to Paul recommending Mark, we were able to get Mark on the show. So I hope you enjoy this. Tons of good music and good stories. He called me from his home in Melbourne, Australia. So for starters, I the way that I... When I think back about your book, I maybe you agree, maybe you don't. Um, I see the, your career being built basically on three pillars. One of them getting the job at EMI. So when you were you were saying how you had been working at the ABC, I assume that your ABC is very similar to our ABC. Is that Australian it's broadcast more like, company? It, it, yeah, but it's like the BBC. Okay. In in the sense that in those days uh, it's, it still is uh, government funded. You know, it was okay. owned by the Australian government, like the BBC was owned by. Well, it's now a corporation, but it, it sort of was set up as um yeah as a government you know channel. So it's it's sort 
it's basically not after ratings. It. But it, what what it was good about the ABC because it was government funded. To me, the ABC is one of the pillars. If you mention pillars, that's got to be one. Because what that allowed me to do was I entered the industry because um, I either wanted to be the best movie director in Australia or the best record producer in Australia. So I, I, through varying connections and through friends of my mother and so whatever, I got an interview, waited six months. In the meantime, as I say in the book of work, abattoirs, whatever, anyway. Until I got into the ABC as a, like what we call a technical operator grade one. And mm. what that does... Uh, and ABC TV is uh, you work on the studio floor, not the outdoor broadcast or film department, but the studio floor of the television centre, which is three giant studios. Now, it's a full-on operation. And because it was government-funded in 1972, uh, you know, uh, liberally government-funded, by that I mean they didn't hold back in funding this place. We went on training courses that you can only dream about, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, learning about cameras, audio equipment, everything, everything, you know, the, uh, directorial courses, production courses, yeah. you, and you're able to, you know, I was able to move freely, as I said in the book, you know, out of one department to become a cinematographer, assistant cinematographer for a while. Yeah. But politics played a hand, and that's why, again, it's one of the pillars, because when I came back to the TV studios where I'd been, an assistant, I'd been a cameraman, they decided because I'd gone to the film department to shoot this movie that they'd punish me in some way, you know, and so the head of the department, audio, but not just any audio, the worst you could possibly assign to, music audio. Mm. And, of course, I was just going, oh, that's cool. Yeah, right. <laughs> and um, and, uh, and proceed ahead. So I, I, I look at that, and then when I left the ABC, I was on sort of the road with a band, you know, doing mm. odd things, a bit of management and stuff like that. And then after that, I, I, because of my ABC experience, when I walked into EMI, EMI which is, you know, owns studios, everything, again, a very big, big company, obviously, sure. like Capital, Capital in America. Mm-hmm. And um, I walked into the recording studios part, you know, saying, you know, I was seeing some any jobs available. And I was naive enough to do it, not, you know, uh, just walk in and do it. But they, they said, look, you know, and there's nothing going at the moment. And you tell me about what you did, the ABC, who trained you? And I, I gave him the name, uh, the guy, my mentor there. And as soon as I said his name, he said, oh, Noel Campbell trained you. Mm. We've got a job. We've, we've definitely got a job for you. If you've been trained by him, we've definitely got a job for you. Yeah. And it's a shitty job to start off with. You know, I was I was a mastering cassettes in, right. in a, a room by myself where I'd have masters of albums. I remember clearly Lagrange is easy top mm. master, mastering that for a cassette, mm-hmm. mastering it for cartridge, and mastering it on a lacquer. Wow. That's that's a, because I, I was then you know, became a mastering engineer. But you were probably uh, in that. Right? I mean, I'm guessing Pardon? you don't know. That this oh, is, yeah. This right. Well, I, was, I knew You're at the time. I, oh, I, I knew at the time. I'm going, oh, this is amazing. I've just yeah. gone from the, the video, learning about television, how that all works, you know, the intricacies behind it all, the the values of production in, and just and the actual hands-on of doing it. Now I'm in a mastering engineer. Sure, I'm overqualified because I've been, when I was at ABC, the last job I had, there was the opening of the Sydney Opera House for a Royal Concert for the Queen. I did the Carol Burnett show for NBC. We won an Emmy for that. Um, we did uh, uh, the Sydney Symphony Orchestra's uh, opening and um, um, 
uh, the Royal, obviously the Queen's visit when she came out to do all that. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty much a high, and I, I, sure. that's when I decided to leave the ABC. And um, and then I joined, and I've gone down four runs lower in EMI mm-hmm. studios, and eventually becoming a fully fledged mastering engineer on the lathe and doing all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's, at one point um, when I was doing this, you got to remember this is back in like '75 or something like that. Right. Uh, 76, uh, 74, yeah, 74 would have been. So I was doing all, you know, cutting records on the 68 lathe, the Neumann, it was all the proper stuff. Mm-hmm. And what would happen is all the label managers, because EMI would manage all a lot of labels from around the world, from Parlophone to Capital to ABC Dunhill to, to uh, you, you know, Tamla Motown, and they'd all come, they would use EMI Records Australia as their distributor, right. and so we, the label managers, would always bring up all their masters, and I'd have to, you know, make records. The Australian version of Stevie sure. Wonder's "Songs in the Key of Life" or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, what I was mastering. And so when these guys, I got to talking to these guys, and they got to talking to me, and I mean, and one of them said to me one day, he said, "You know what? You shouldn't be working." Here. I said, what do you mean? He said, you, you should be done in A&R with us, you know, mm-hmm. and um, the, with the labels and local A&R and getting that because, I mean, you know, you know, the staff, you do that, you do this, you've got this experience in that. It's, it's silly, if you, mm-hmm. you know, it just makes sense. So I got offered a job as running Capital Records in Australia, that's, you know, the American Capital, you know, at, at the age of 24. Right. And, and um, also I was the local artist label manager. I'm not the A&R manager. But uh, I was, uh, you know, any, any promotional things, any, any marketing, any plans that we need to uh, select this, their material for what's to be released, when it's to be released, as opposed to A&Ring the album of musically, you know, I was yeah. everything but that for the local artists. But for Capitol Records, I had a free hand, you know, and in that stage, you know, we had, it was the Natalie Cole period, I guess, Helen Reddy, um, sure. Glenn Campbell, uh, Dr. Hook. In fact, with Dr. Hook, we got sent a, a single uh, from, you know, Dr. Hook, remember that? Sure, band? yeah, cover of a Rolling Stone. Yeah, yeah exactly. They, their first album, you know, Capital sent it out to, of course, I get a pre release of it because I'm running Capital Australia. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, we, and they said, worldwide, we're going with this song as a single. And I listened to the whole album and I said, you know what? Do you mind if I don't use that as a single here and I go with something else? And they said, oh yeah, we've got something you want to go with. I said, we want to go with Only 16. Only 16, but I loved her so. But she was too young to fall in love. And I was too young to know. We'd laugh and we'd sing and do funny things. And it made our hearts glow. She was too young to fall in love And I was too young to know So why did I give my heart so fast It never will happen again But I was a mere child of 16 I've aged a year since then she was only 16, only 16, Ooh, with eyes that would glow. But she was too young 
you know, and I thought, she's an only six, Sam Cook song, mm-hmm. only 16, and of course, so they said, okay, in your case, we'll let you do that, but be it on your own head, went number one, bang, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. huge, flew up a chart. Then I yeah. put out, yeah, and then I put out Sylvie's mother said, mm-hmm. bang, it was all over, you know, they, yeah. those guys toured for fucking years. Yeah. But so uh, I got a lot of experience out of that. Yeah. But one day, uh, um, you know, running the, you know, d- these A and R in in that sense, and knowing how the international market worked, you know, being working with capital was fantastic, as well as a local artist. But the head of EMI artists, EMI Records, uh, a fellow called Stephen Shrimpton, who left a year later to manage Paul McCartney for twenty years. Mm-hmm. Could tell I, uh, you know, he said, are you happy? I said, no, I'd rather be a record producer. He said, fair enough. You're now, I'm gonna, I'm, tomorrow I'm making you the staff, our staff producer's assistant. <laughs> a guy called Richard, Richard Lush who'd worked with the Beatles, you know. Right, right. And so I was, I was, I was made his assistant and, um, and pretty much, so yeah, and so the EMI is, is definitely pillar number two. Yeah, pillar number that's three. what I was going to say. And the third, let's see if mm. we see, think the same thing. I was going to say mm-hmm. be in the right place at the right time for John Paul Young. Now, I know Alberts that, in general, Alberts, yeah, well, the whole Alberts, okay. not just John Paul Young. Well, it's, I, yeah, it's, that's true. I think about the John Paul Young thing because I, I feel like that's the moment where you had to you had to act on a mm. second, you know, without any preparation, and you nailed the moment. And with that, yes, but that, it was right but, but I was working with I was working with George George Young and Harry Bander. That's true. You know. It, yeah, and that and the greatest thing to me, you know, the pillar, which that's why I say Alberts. Alberts, and not just Alberts, but Ted Albert. Mm. If it wasn't for the, the man Ted Albert, and if you research him, you know, with Alberts, mm. he is responsible, I'm telling you, man, for the, all the Australian music that you've heard from uh, 1964, pretty much. And when he got involved and decided, okay, I'm going to build like, his family, which is Croesus, you know, in the music business from selling everything from harmonicas to sheet music to then got into real estate, whatever. And then, but he was always the musical son. And he said, you know, I want to keep them. They owned radio stations all around Australia. And so he was put in charge of the music division, the other son in charge of the radio, and the other son in charge of the property portfolios. Mm. And he said, I'm going to make album productions. We're going to build our own studios. We're going to do this. And I'm going to sign X. I'm going to do this. He signed the Easy Beats. Mm-hmm. He signed, you know, I mean, fucking Easy Beats. They're amazing. How, how could a guy that rich know that the Easy Beats were going to be that hot? Crazy. You know, and guys that lived in, in, and at that stage they all lived in a, a what we call a hostel for migrants. 
Mm-hmm. So the chances, you know, so he was out there and he, he signed Billy Thorpe, he signed Ted Muller, he signed these amazing acts and that, that really created everything. And then, of course, George Young and Harry Vander from the Easy Beats went on to, to you know, bring on ACDC and sure. me and other people, you know. To, so the whole, the Albert's tree is, is, is a pillar. Yeah. I think John Paul Young was, was, was brilliant to be in the room. When George Young walked in Monday morning, he said, "Okay, we got a hit in uh, in in South Africa with Jesse Hero and, and a hit in uh, Germany with Standing in the Rain." And and uh, we, so we got to follow him up. Okay, Mark, uh, get the Standing in the Rain loop out, and we'll put that on, and uh, we'll start and, and see how we we'll write a song to follow that up. And this is like ten o'clock in the morning, so I put mm-hmm. the loop on, and it goes. You know, oh babe, I saw you standing in the rain. Da, 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 da. That's how the standing in the rain went. There was a hit in Germany. So I put the, the, the lip on, and and George has got this little thing, little chord organ. It's got double octave and press buttons for chords, right? Uh-huh. And it's experimenting with this thing, uh, uh, what you call a um, uh, chromatic um, uh, shift up the octave. Yeah. Da, uh, da 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 and just kept doing that over and over and against it and he yells out to Harry Vander Harry get 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 the book out and what the book is is an old notebook tattered edges everything but pre obviously mobile phones and personal computers they write any line down they could during the day, I would think, of, oh, that's a good line. I would see something printed in the newspaper, oh, that's a good line. And, you know, and, oh, that's a good line. Or, you know, and just keep filling it up because I know they need good lines later on. Mm-hmm. So, Harry, Harry, read, read, read me out some, some title lines, you know. Mm-hmm. And Harry's yelling out all these lines and just going in the background, da, da, da. Harry's yelling at this, da, 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 da. George going, da, 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 Love is in the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds good. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. Love is in the air Everywhere I look around Love is in the air Every sight and every sound And I don't know if I'm being foolish Don't know if I'm being wise But it's something that I must believe in and it's there when I look in your eyes Love is in the air In the whisper of the tree Love is in the air In the thunder of the sea And I don't know if I'm just dreaming Don't know if I feel safe But it's something that I and so, and, and basically, that's where it started. Mm-hmm. And and built during the day to nine o'clock that night, when George got the phone, the old-fashioned phone, cradled in his ear, mm-hmm. against his shoulder. He's got a pen in one, a pencil in one hand, and he, and Harry's got a pencil, and they're both writing the lyrics to "Lovers in the Air." And they're on the and George's on the phone at this time of night to John Paul Young, saying, "John." Got a song we want you to sing. Just finishing off the lyrics now. We recorded it today, but it'd be great if you come and do a few vocals. Came in, that, uh, learnt the song, really easy, great, such a great singer, John Poyer. Mm-hmm. And even added a few bits of stuff himself, 
you know, to yeah. colour. Sure. And and bang, we're yeah. out of there at midnight. And we hadn't mixed. It took three weeks to mix, mind you. But we 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 had lovers in the in, yeah. in the can by midnight. It was amazing. Just Stuff like incredible. that. Yeah. Just, like, just that. like that. And then three weeks. Then just three weeks of mixing because, as you imagine, when you're mixing, you get really into a song. You make the sh- smallest shift, you know, in an instrument, and to you it's huge, right? right. And you know, is it better than last time? And so three weeks of that, no automation in those days, right? Just mix after mix after mix, you know, like uh, you're not like a mix a minute, but like a mix every right. few hours. So in the end, you got thirty mixes Still. or something like that. Oh my god! And, and, uh, and, and, uh, and then so, and we can't pick it. And so, and this is again where Ted Elf comes in, who I was talking about earlier. And George said to me, Mark, take him up to Ted's office and let Ted pick it. Okay? So I, would, I put him in a little cardboard box, took all the cassettes up into Ted's beautiful oak-panelled office. Mm-hmm. He's talking to his wife, his nookie, or his, uh, I can't remember her name, it's some nickname. Yes, Mark, how can I help you? Oh, well, we finished Lovers and uh, the song for John Paul Young, but we can't decide, you know, the boys, mm-hmm. George and Harry, can't pick a mix, and they asked me to bring him up for you to make the choice. And I know there's like 30, 40 mixes in there, right? We go, I go downstairs. Ten minutes later, Ted walks down with a cassette. Yeah, this is it, this one. <laughs> and of course, of course, we had the, the song was probably right for mix two. Right. But the thing is, cool, right? no one else hears those minute changes, and he just picked the first cassette he's picked up. Sure. Yep, sounds fine to me. Nothing yeah. wrong with that. Don't Let's even, not overthink this. You know, it's not overthink. Just don't need to listen yeah. to anything else. Is, right. you know, is everything on this? Is, it, is everything on this? This doesn't mix is the same as everything else. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just change here, change. You know, vocal, uh, levels of no, This is it. Wow. That's you go. That's it. Done. Yeah. And that's Ted Albert for you again, coming in over the top right. Uh, at the right time to give the right advice and to and being, you know, it's like when I first joined Albert, I didn't get paid for a long time. And George Young came to me just before Christmas and said, Mark, I'm going away for Christmas. You know, we close the studio down over Christmas. I said, no, well, George, I'm, I can't. I'm, yeah. I'm not going anywhere. He says, what, don't we pay you enough? I said, well, George, you don't pay me anything. <laughs> and he said, what? I, I said, mate, and, and, and he said, yeah, no. And he said, what are what, what, what you talking about? And he's a you know, Scotty sort of accent. Uh-huh. And I said, I said, well, I've been here. And I, and I thought, well, after the first two weeks, I thought I must be getting paid every two weeks. Or a month or something, and then then I then I figured oh, I know what it is. It's the work experience with Vander and Young, the hottest producers in Australia, mm-hmm. and you know, incredibly hot on the planet. That's I talked myself into the fact that my pay was it wasn't a mistake. It was that was my pay, right? A privilege of working with those guys. Yeah. And um, in the meantime, I'd sold my '62 Les Paul. <laughs> I'd sold my 1935 Gibson Kalamazoo. Yeah, you know, all people like doesn't matter, man. It's only wooden string, it's wooden wire. Who cares? Right. You know, I mean, right. people Japanese would pay a fortune for it, but but doesn't, doesn't matter. It, what was more important was the experience I was gaining, yeah. and what, even more important than that was when George turned around and said, "You're kidding me. We haven't been paying six months and you haven't said anything." You know, uh-huh. and then so he and um, he called Ted down. And Ted Albert came downstairs with his big red book. Full scale page books. Mark, I believe we haven't paid you. That's been a typographical error. Here, uh, here's what we'll do. We'll give you the last however many months you've been here. Here's a hundred dollars. Hundred dollars. And then he said, every Friday we'll give you another hundred dollars, but that hundred dollars will go any against any 
royalties uh, that you earn for the company. So, <laughs> Cruel? Yeah. To say. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. I mean, this guy was good. I'm telling you. I, I believe he, it. And I, I respected him greatly. He was, every time. And then, of course, I, and then what happened was, luckily for me, that three months later, I've released the Angels' Faith to Play It album. Every time he sent me a, ro- a, ro- a royalty uh, advice would arrive, a statement would arise. It'd always be a beautiful note with it from Ted. Nice. That's, That's the kind great. of guy he was. Yeah. And he died at 52 of a massive heart attack. It's oh. so sad. And my, oh, when I was working in New York uh, on, on a project in New York, and um, couldn't believe it. That's too bad. You know? <laughs> yeah, but the Elvis period was responsible for you know that not. Just loves in the air and Rose Tattoo, you know, uh, yeah. you know, uh, mixing stuff like uh, Bad Boy for Love, um, you know, mixing uh, Powerade, ACDC. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that, you, know that's, you had mentioned that you weren't all that involved on Let There Be Rock, even though you have a credit on there. But the Powerade yeah, yeah, well, is I really think what comes on yeah. strong. Oh, absolutely. With, 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 with Let There Be Rock, I think I was involved in um, some of the last stuff for the Let There Be Rock itself. You know, from memory, because I came in, I was all, you know, star really. I was doing anything. I said mixing rose tats, I was doing, you know, live ACDC albums later on, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, after Power Age, all that stuff. And, you know, who knows what gets used and what doesn't get used in the end. I mean, I know that like, all the mixes of Power Age are different around the world because mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we just keep mixing because right. um, we know we can do it better. And, you know, oh, it's coming out in America saying, so, oh, let's remix the album. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, right. So, uh, and, and it's sort of the same with, with Let There Be Rock, you know. Um, as I said, I came in on the tail end of that. And certainly not the, um, I wasn't recording the basic tracks, but I was, you know. And you can tell my sound totally different if right. you listen to Let There Be Rock and you listen to Power Age. Sure. It's, uh, I spent I spent a long time selecting those marshals, man, and getting them right. I I, I mean, because I had 16, what do I have? Eight Marshall amps and sixteen quad boxes, and I tested every Marshall amp, as eight of them, with every quad box, not just every quad box, but every speaker in every quad box. That's amazing. So that's yeah, and, and I beat them all. It took me weeks, and I had this, I had this, I made this book and yeah. the chart for tone quality as how I rated everything. Until I got the right one, I said, "That's for Malcolm. That's his setup, <laughs> and that's Angus, and that's yeah. Angus's setup." And so when they came, when we came in to do Power Age, you know, we'd already rehearsed with them 
during uh, a couple of weeks because Cliff couldn't come in, so we did midnight to dawn rehearsals and some famous photographs of that floating about. But the because um, there's not many studio photographs from that period. Uh, and George Young playing bass because Cliff couldn't, his visa wasn't available at that time. So mm. you got this great, a great shot of George Young on bass and then two young, young brothers on guitar and Phil Rudd on drums. I mean, it's just killer. But, um, and so we, all that, but so we, you know, and I refined the, you know, the settings on the, the amps at that point because they do their own settings, obviously. But what I do with Marshalls is, the thing about Marshalls, particularly like that period, the Plexis and all those sort of ones is, they have sweet spots, and, oh. and you yeah, can find that with a certain volume. So that it worked really well, Power yeah. Age. Um, yeah. Now, I want to stop you real quick, because I, I think it's interesting yeah. that uh, you had mentioned in the book that you felt like Riff Raff is your very favorite ACDC song. of ACDC are one of the best bands ever, but there's not a lot of, you know, diversity in sound necessarily. So what makes that song the one that rises above? Because it represents the band more than any other song uh, there's that they've done. I think it's, it's more complex for a start. Mm. You, know, uh, it, you know, the way it, the, the, it builds, the, uh, the riff it gets into, and you try playing that riff. I had Angus teaching mm. me that riff. And it was, it's a, it's just ridiculous. And then you get it, and the fact that they use the, the A sus4, the, the, the major with the sus4, I don't know if you're a player at all, mm. the, they do it better than anyone else. Bang, 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 bang. Yeah. You know, that sort of, that, that's, sure. that's like a, that's a major, and then a sus4, back to the major, sus4, go major, sus4, major, sus4, sus4, major, major, sus4. You yes. know what I mean? To get that down, 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 down. And the use of that was astronomical. I thought Bond's vocal, I could see him smiling at me as, every time I listened to that song. Mm -hmm. I can see Twinkle, mm -hmm. I can see Bond singing it in my That's mind. Amazing. And mm -hmm. I can see I can see a twinkle in his eye. I just that song just represents everything about A C D C from yeah. start to finish. Yeah. Okay. It just everything. You I know, love that song too. I just you, thought that was a bold if you statement. Get a, Oh no, I don't think so. I really? think it's so obvious. It's ridiculous. Good. I mean, okay. but you know, you know, I think this, uh, you know, you, you can't really compare it maybe to Brian Johnson sort of stuff because it's a different era. Mm -hmm. But even overall, playing the Brian Johnson stuff, you know, I mean, in like you know, uh, uh, I mean, the hit off back and back is is pretty hard to beat. What's right. that called? Um, uh, um, um, you shook me all night long. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but that's a pop song. Right. And ACDC did pop songs earlier on on their first couple of albums. Whereas if you listen to Power Age as an album, mm -hmm. you just go on shooting. 
listen yeah. to that. I mean, it's a, a song about Bond's girlfriend going out scoring heroin, right? That's what it. That's what it's about. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly what it's about, and just the feel on that is so simple, so dry, True. so nothing. I, I mean, I you know I, I used gone shooting with a band I was working with here, you know, after a particular '70s sound, and I, and and I'd just have gone shooting on a loop on my computer during the session, you know, just coming gently through the speakers, gone shooting. It was that really just mm-hmm. dead, dry, nothing sound, and. And, and I remember reading an interview with this guy at halfway through the album. I said, oh, sorry, what's it like working with Mark? I said, oh, yeah, it's great, you know, you know, getting a lot of work done, the song's good and everything. He's got this weird habit of listening to this one song all the time. And bloody, and, you know, and they didn't realise what I was doing. You know, of course, my engineer did, and I was setting him up, you know. Sure. What I, and then later on, it tweaked with them what, what happened. And then, so next time there was another interview, for example, where they realised that, what I'd done and why I had why that song was being played. It was more to get them in a, a place. Not that they sound like sure. Gone Shoot. Right. I wanted to take them back to the nineteen seventy eight, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Not over the top, but it's real. You know, yeah. it's not full on like riff rap. I didn't play riff rap, even right. though it's my favorite. But Gone Shoot is pretty bloody good. That's a good and one it's so simple. Okay. Mm. Well let's uh let me let's go back to face to face and the angels for a minute. I um mm-hmm. they uh they're a band I knew, you know, I, that was the thing. And I, and I haven't said this yet in, in reading your book, I realize that I never thought of Australia as being that exotic of a place musically, but most of the bands that you write about in there never made mm-hmm. a dent in the States, you know, not really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know who a lot mm-hmm. of them are and I've heard some songs, mm-hmm. but they're not, a, they're not. Oh, in excess, in excess, in excess. Well, of course, and, I, uh, that's not uh, uh, true for all of them. Ocean blues, mm-hmm. hoodoo gurus. These are some of oh, my yeah, favorite yeah, bands yeah. ever. But yeah, yeah, like yeah, Paul I agree Chisel and The Angels and Models mm. a Little Bit, Noise Works, Australian Crawl, all these amazing bands mm. that meant something down mm. there never really got a shot mm. over here. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, that's a lot, a lot of reasons for that. You really? Know, like, uh, when I, well, in Cold Chisel's case, you know, in particular, they, 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 they were such an Australian band. You know, they, they, sung, they sang about Australian things. And and that's what it was like. And when I remember when we did, the, I did the last album I did with them. I think it was I, I did 20th Century, but I only came in because some guy got I had to come and take it over. Mm. But the last full album I did with the Circus Animals, and I remember saying to my wife, wife at the time after the last day, drove me home. I said, you know what, Cold Chisel, I like Vegemite. You know what Vegemite is? Yeah, I do. Exactly. Well, yeah. you know, you give you give. An adult American a Vegemite for the first time, and I spit it out. Mm-hmm. And because I go, what the hell is that? You know, and, and but because we grow up with Vegemite, right. we love it. Yeah, you know what I mean. And that's yeah. a bit like cultism. That's what they're like. See, yeah. I, I remember you and, saying that in the book. I don't, I don't mean to be argumentative, but well, to a person like me who loves music, I don't. I yeah. mean, British alternative or rock acts. Well, and I've got uh, there's more reasons. In. Oh, okay. Yeah, go ahead. And, and, and so that's one of the reasons. Okay. Another reason is because of, of the, the deal that Warner Brothers had, they were on Warner, WEA, which is Warner Electro uh, Atlantic in Australia, right? Mm-hmm. Which is basically Warner Music now. And, and so in all those deals, when, when uh, Warner's were, Australia were offering deals to, and I was head of A&R, I became head of A&R during this. In all those deals, 
you'd be if you sold say platinum you're guaranteed a US release mm. okay mm-hmm. now that sounds great on paper you're guaranteed a US release on one either Warner Brothers Electra or Atlantic right guaranteed yeah. your album would go out now the problem you got there is that's fine except if you're the head of A&R at, at, at Atlantic in New York and you got a group of acts at your working out and, and all of a sudden the president walks in and mm-hmm. says you've got to release this yeah. and you go what the fuck is this right, I'm not, right. you know, I haven't done anything I don't know I don't know anything about this stuff no 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 it's contractual we just got to release it yeah really oh, oh okay so it's contractual yeah uh, hey assistant number four could take this down to promotions and tell them that this is uh, something got released from Australia. Yeah. So it doesn't get you know any take. It doesn't get any traction. Right. So that and, and for instance, with Cultures is a great choice because they went with a song, a song called My Baby is the first single. that I got the bass I wanted everyone to write on the album this is one the bass player had written mm-hmm. and it was a poppy little tune and you know and, and I and I and you know when we went to the studio there wasn't enough songs so you know everyone I locked them away in corners and he came up with this with the help of Ian Moss and the record company uh, Electra they were on in the, in the US decided that My Baby was the first track that they would release as a single mm-hmm. fair enough it's their territory Mm-hmm. Not the first track I would release because I'd like bums on seats, mm-hmm. you know. So I'd release something that was a bit more up vibe, fucking rock, mm-hmm. rocky as, said something, and so people would at least not climb the charts with it, but would listen to it and say, "Fuck, I wouldn't mind seeing this band." Mm-hmm. That's all you. That's what you need. Led Zeppelin did that really well yeah. in America, yeah. and that's the way to do it. Funnily enough, it was the same group of companies. But what they decided to do, they sent my baby out all across America to the you know, main networks wrapped in a baby's diaper yeah. with a pa- with a pass a giant pacifier uh, with a giant pacifier right with a giant baby's pacifier. That was so uh, at Lecturer's attempt at marketing cultures in America. So That's terrible. you got your Vegemite number number one. Yeah. Now to cut through that, you got to get you got to grow up with the band. You can't just release a single thing. You know, let's hope it goes top 20 and we'll see what happens after that. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to let this, you go promote the band. You say, no, 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 we're not releasing that album until we've toured you. Mm-hmm. We've got a good look at you, seeing what's, how it actually works. Don't worry about what it's going to cost. We'll, we'll figure that out. You've earned that right. Mm-hmm. You know, but, but we'll work at, work a way of touring you in, in a few clubs, getting a feel for you and look at how you work. 
and then we'll look at the, what singles we should be looking at and then and how we're going to do it and when we release the album. None of that. None of that. It was yeah. all just put on automatic. And that's uh, another reason. And now, now that, that's just one band I'm mentioning. Yeah. But that was pretty much the case with everybody unless they were on Alberts. Because yeah. on Alberts and that's ACDC and Angels, or were they left at the wrong time? The Angels just... Idiot, so it's at the wrong time, <laughs> right. and uh, and because then you could do your own deal. Yeah. Uh, for example, you know, uh, ACDC doing a deal with Atlantic, separate mm. to it's not because Atlantic won them, not because they're forced on them. Mm. And so, and so many Australian bands suffered that fate. You know, many Australian so, court wouldn't have made it anywhere because they were too unintelligible or very. You know, the the, the, the lyric was just until we did Reckless, I think, which sure. is their first number one. Uh, and then that sort of had a sort of magic-y thing about that that might have worked if the promotion was correct with it. But it's 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 the tyranny of distance is, yeah. is the biggest problem. And That's and it. and I've all, and as I've said to all my any act that I've worked with them when, I, when I'm, uh, and they asked me about that, and I said, what you've got to do, no matter what it takes, if you're serious about what you're doing, this is your life, this is what you love, you've got to get in sync with the rest of the world immediately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that means dragging your bum off on a points only or a commie flight off to America, playing yeah. any shitty gig you can play, sleeping in vans, doing anything, and then come back to Australia, do the same thing here again. Yeah. Then go off to the European festivals and try and get on one of those. you just got to keep playing. Right. And you've got to get in sync immediately. And I said, that'll do a lot of things for you. A, it'll sharpen you up. You'll get used to international feel of of, of, of music. You'll get you know, eventually you will be recognised, and by the time you come back to Australia and record your, your your album or whatever your next record, they'll be influenced by that, and you'll have something just more to give away at gigs and uh, you know at sell it, whatever you know, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. And um, you know that you know that, that's you know, the, the only way you can really do it. You just can't yeah. you know unless you've got a super 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 hit on your hands. Right. And they usually tend to become one hit wonders, you know. Right, so, right. When you, uh, you know, like, like minute work is classic crap. Exactly. Yes. Um, you mentioned mm-hmm. Australian Crawl. I will say of of all the bands that are featured in your book, I think they're the ones that are probably the that would be the most the hardest to swallow globally. Everyone else to me is I just agree. a great rock band. You know, I listen to totally Jimmy Barnes totally. has one of the greatest voices in history, and they he doesn't sound that different to me than like Southside Johnny and the Jukes. You know what I mean? That's right. But um, Australian Crawl is the most kind of uh, out there a little bit. Now, having said unique. that. Unique. Yes, unique. Yes. And maybe unique to Australia. Um, but you got to yeah. tell me, if you do you think that uh, Guns N' Roses purposely ripped off unpublished critics?
Uh, I, I, look, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a strange question because I only caught up with all that when it blew up recently, about a year ago or whatever. Oh. And obviously I worked with Australian Crawl and obviously Guns N' Roses asked me to produce our first album. But apart from that, that's the only connection, you know. And so I, I don't think they would have ripped it off. I really don't. Hmm. I think Slash is too good a guitar player for that, for a start. So I mean, you don't think you know, those guys even heard that song? I mean, I know I had never heard it until you mentioned it in your book. Well, they wouldn't have because when I, 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 uh, I recorded, unless it was on the album, that I did for Geffen, funny, they were on Geffen too. Yeah. I, we did, Geffen signed Australian Crawl, but then they wanted me to uh, re-record all the hits to make them more American. Re-record mm-hmm. uh, all the hits, so, uh, make them sound better. Mm-hmm. So not just mix them, I, I re-recorded them. And I said, yeah, I'll do it on one condition, I can do two tracks, new tracks. And we did, uh, obviously, um, Reckless, um, uh, which was huge and uh, another one called white limbo and they're totally yeah, different white limbo. Yeah. yeah white limbo and reckless totally different city sleeps taxi sweeps avenue broken dreams no one called angel fall alice is in wonderland white man dance heat romance neon fashion cheddar alice is in club So that's me on the record. So, you know what I mean? It's, it, that was always going to be the, me trying to make them sound more accessible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as opposed to that what, not understanding a word that's being said. I had the wrong lyrics. I had totally wrong lyrics. <laughs> right. That's how much I understood it. Right. I think it's in the book somewhere. Yeah. But I thought, that I, I said, yeah, when you sing that, and he said, right, and the thing said, oh, no, actually, I'm singing totally different lyrics. You know, and I said, okay, right, mm-hmm. sorry about that. Mm-hmm. But um, Interesting. we've just got to make them a little clearer yeah, in that right. case. Yeah. But yeah, that's, uh, I agree with you. The Australian Corps was always going to be a tough one. And as I said, I only came in because Geffen right. wanted to um, okay. uh, uh, release stuff and they asked and then uh, the Australian Corps got in touch with me and asked if I'd do the re-recording and producing and the mixing. And, the, okay. and as I said, as long as I can do two new songs, no problem. Sure, sure. Um, okay, so I had I talked to Mark Gable from Choir Boys on oh, here yes. about mm-hmm. a year and a half ago. And I usually mm-hmm. end a lot of these interviews with asking, like, what just somebody's favorite memory of their entire career is, you know, meeting uh-huh. someone, hearing somebody, something. So be thinking about that. But anyway, when I asked Mark that question, he said yeah. that the most amazing thing he ever saw was Divinals, Christy Amphlett, Chrissy Amphlett live yeah. fronting the Divinals mm-hmm. early on. That was mm-hmm. his most amazing memory. And I'm, mm-hmm. you know, we, right. didn't, we didn't see that, obviously. So what was so no, no. special about Chrissy well, specifically? Well, 
Well, what was special about the vinyls was that we, um, it's an interesting story. Uh, I knew Chrissy, I lived next door to Chrissy twice. Mm. Uh, once when she was in um, singing with, I think, a jazz rock band called Flotsam Jetsam or something like that. I'm not sure if that was the name of them at that stage. And she lived in a, a flat next door and I remember talking to her once. And she said, oh, yeah, do this. And I said, yeah, yeah, it's sort of, you know, producing angels or whatever. I was I had made head of A&R at Warner Music halfway during the Culture's Least album. And uh, a publisher came to see me one day with, and he said, I want you to listen to this tape, a guy called Jerry Sword. And he played me a song by this band called Lip Service. The band was made out of members of the Jesus Christ Superstar Chorus and band, and the musical was on in town, so they had a lot of people getting together, you know, making up bands and stuff from who were working on the show. You know, they, could, they were getting paid, they could afford to. Anyway, so this uh, this one group had called themselves Lip Service, and you know, obviously Chrissy Amphlett was there, Mark McAtee, Jeremy Paul from Air Supply uh, was there, uh, formed the band. Uh, and he later got sacked and he should have won the band. Um, and, and uh, you know, uh, he played bass and they had this drummer, you know, because I, anyway, I listened to this tape that Jerry, and I got to, and I heard this one song, Boys in Town. And I said, this is pretty fucking good. Mm-hmm. And then I heard the outro, the way the outro, what they did, and I thought, fuck me, what a good drummer that guy is. Mm-hmm. And so I, I got in touch with Chrissy and got the whole band to come in. I said, that's great, you know. I love the drums on the end. And, and Chrissy said, oh, no, that's not the same drummer. Uh, it's another guy, and he was the only one that wasn't there at this time. So I was able to say, Chrissy, you know, I'll sign you guys. You get that other drummer back. You got a deal. Mm. That that's just that way. That mm-hmm. combination, magic. That's you just that's just one on equal three. Okay. And and so they did that. And so what I did after that was because I was head of A and R, I signed a text. Every time I did the same as what I did with the Angels. Every time there was any spare uh, studio time around anywhere in Sydney or, at, at, you know, outside, uh, around the region of Sydney in cheapish sort of studios. I'd grab it for two, three days, mm. four days. Anytime they weren't working, uh, and I'd take the band in there and we'd just work on songs and, you know, we'd always come back to Boys in Town try and get that right. And that, after a while, I remember about six months into doing that, I, w- I went to bed one night with the pencil and pad in the book next to me and came up with the arrangement for Boys in Town and what we'd be missing. And there was this big middle section in there and of course got to cut this fucking halftime section right out of there you know and bring in a, a half chorus or whatever it was I was like being hit by an hour. <laughs> yeah. I got a red note. 
booked the studio, called the band up, when they were available, a few days later, bang, in the studio, had the song, bang, done. And then I had the song. I had Boys in Town. But then this wasn't a major band. Remember, they still had day gigs sort of working at Jesus Christ Superstar. They had a right. few nights. They couldn't do them too many. And so I had to wait for a vehicle. By that, I mean something, a one and one equals three. I knew I had a song that was great. I just knew I, I had a band that no one knew. Mm-hmm. But this was a live rock sort of good song. You know, This is a song that only would it would get bums on seats. Mm-hmm. And so I needed a vehicle. I needed something else to promote it. And out of the blue came this guy who I used to go to high school with and said, oh, my brother's producing a, a film called Monkey Grip and they want you to produce some music. And by the way, they're looking for a band. You wouldn't have a band with a girl singer by any chance. This is like, okay. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a fucking setup. Right. This has got to be a setup. This is totally impossible, you know, too good yeah. to be true story, you know. Sure. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, what's, what's the story of the band? He said, well, there's a scene in the, in the, in the movie where the, the girl they sing and plays is one of the main part's best friends. So they go and see her at gigs every now and again. So we're going to have that band and just use one of the actors. The only person we want to replace is the bass player because we need him because he's also one of the guys in the movie a lot. But you can keep the band as is. So, uh, you know, I thought to myself, holy fuck, this could be great. Mm-hmm. I, and so I ran, and I ran, you know, to spoke to the band and I got back to him. I said, yep, we'll do it. And, you know, standard fee, whatever, on one condition, you shoot the video for Boys in Town. Mm. Nice. You know, the song that we've done. You, mm. you guys use your equipment, your crew, and everything to shoot the video. And they, they jumped at the chance. They said, fuck, yeah, rock video for a band. Yeah, we'll yeah. do that. And, of course, they had all the best equipment in town, all that sort of stuff. And so we thought about Chrissy and, and uh, stuff like that. Now, remembering I'm still fresh out of Albert's, basically, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, in other words, Angus in school uniforms, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, sure. And so what what Mark Gable was watching on stage was a girl in a school uniform. Mm, right, okay. So that's we right. dressed her, you know, that's right. yeah. that was, I mean, you think, and now you know where that's it comes from. That's very provocative. From. Yeah, got it. Okay. Uh, yeah, but the whole, the whole point is, you know, I learned my lessons well, and this is yeah. the whole point I mentioning earlier, you know, being a label manager, being working with uh, Vander and Young as their assistant for you know as their apprentice basically for mm-hmm. three years, being a label manager, working in television, I understood how all these sort of things work. So, so not one in those days, I didn't make one record without thinking about how can I keep this band's integrity mm-hmm. and yet make it marketable for radio at the same time. Mm-hmm. Was always the conundrum sure. that sure. You, you you would play with. Yeah. And so with the vinyls, when that came along. Had an A-class video, put it on that show countdown here. You know, Jesus Christ Superstar wrapped up, bang, out goes a band, find them a manager, the rest is history. You know, we yeah. just killed it. That's great. And then we flew to, flew to New York to Power Station, did the first album over there. And I think yeah. I got halfway through the second album before they sacked me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, which is so yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't regret it now, but that doesn't matter. I mean, sure. everyone has choices. But and but you know the touching thing you know to cap all that off, in 2013 I took my youngest daughter to New York for doing well at um, getting into university and uh, and we stayed at the Waldorf Astoria for a couple of weeks you know I got a great deal to my other daughter's travel agent so we were in the Waldorf Towers mm. you know I took her to see you know uh, previews of Matilda on Broadway and nice. you know. Smoke tons of pot walking around the streets with her, you know, showed her how to smoke a joint in New York without getting busted. Uh, you know, just get on a medium strip and point to things like it's architecture, you know. Got it. Okay, good to know. <laughs> good tip. 
and and Central Park was one of our favourites as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, you know, my kids are pretty liberated. But but they, I mean, they're not. I mean, they've got very smart and they've got very good jobs. In fact, my eldest daughter is she's classified government top secret, so I can't mm. even tell you what she does. <laughs> so <laughs> it's quite bizarre. Yeah. But anyway, back to Chrissy, uh-huh. and and so um, what we did, I said, oh. And I'd done it the year before with my wife. I'd growing up, you know, got in touch with Chrissy, come out, you know, for dinner, mm-hmm. uh, for lunch. And she had been gotten sick. I, I'd seen her a year or so before when she had uh, multiple sclerosis and breast cancer, but she came out for the, the when Charlie Drayton was playing with Colchester when they reformed into the, into this amazing tour mm-hmm. in 2011, I think it was. And so, you know, I knew her conditions. So I, I saw her in 2012 and I was in New York, ran out to dinner. And so I, she came out and... Um, we went out to lunch, and myself, my daughter Madeline, and Charlie Drayton and, and Chrissy, mm. and sat down at this restaurant on Seventh Avenue somewhere, you know, uh, Midtown, and the date picked. Had the best afternoon, just yeah. a great afternoon. And then I got up, you know, silently as if I was going to the restaurant to pay the bill. Mm-hmm. And I walked over to the maitre d' and I said, I, uh, I said, uh, I'd like to pay the bill. And he said, No, this is on us. What? Really? Yeah, I said, yeah. yeah, he said, this is on us. And I, I said, you're kidding. And I said, no, 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 just don't worry about it, man, this is on us. And that's yeah, so I went and sat down again. I didn't, you know, I didn't tell him anything like yeah. that, you know. And, and then I, you know, my daughter, and she said, Chrissy said the most beautiful things to my daughter about me because she wasn't around in the divinal days, you know, and Chrissy sure. had gone on to do many other things. And that night she wrote me a letter, uh, an email, basically, mm-hmm. about the day and what I meant to her and her life and stuff like that. Wow. And it's so beautiful, you know, and it was so great to get. And then the next day, the very next day, she went into hospital and she was dead two weeks later. Oh. And yeah. so it was like, it just happened to be in New York at the right time yeah. with yeah. my daughter, all that sort of stuff. So it's a long, it's a long involved power with the divinals going okay. from what my, you know, and I've, I've lived it, you know. Yeah. I've, I've walked into when in LA, and I've walked into hotels at three in the morning when I've been mixing, you know, going up to my room, and there's mm-hmm. McEntee, you know, lying on the sofa, just totally, you know, he's a great mate, just yeah. t- totally out of it, you know, yeah. comatose. Yeah. And then I come down at 11 o'clock in the morning, still on the same sofa, mm-hmm. comatose. Yeah. <laughs> and they've had their battles and all that sort of stuff, and, you know. Yeah. And and I had a royalty issue with my long, t- you know, all that stuff. But you know, it just pales in significance. Yeah, good. You know, okay. it's when you put everything together. I'm glad there's a positive spin. Uh, okay. Oh, there, there is. Good. The total positive. So I want to add one thing you mentioned in the book that struck me because I am a firm believer in this too. You feel strongly about track ones, that the first track on an album is supposed to. Especially tracks. It, it declare what. What's your philosophy? And then I'll tell you mine. And in fact, my favorite okay, track uh, of I, all time uh, ties back to you a little yeah. bit. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, what, what I try to do is, um, you know, there's different ways of tracking, you know, like um, when I'm left alone, which I usually am, particularly in those days, mm-hmm. I, I would build the tracking order. And I'd do the mixing. I'd do by myself, no, no excesses around ever. No cold chisels around ever. You know, the angels every now and again, John Bruce would try and overtake stuff, but mm. you just have to deal with that. Mm. But even with some of the ACDC stuff I was doing, it's just me. But my philosophy in, 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 in tracking is it's, you know, I believe in, depending on the band, 
and or the artist. I mean, they're all different. Could be a you know, it could be a, a, a soft jazz singer to a mm-hmm. full-on rock artist. But you've got to come out, first song, and hit him in the face with a baseball bat. Agreed. And Agreed. then leave. Yeah. And say nothing. And say nothing. <laughs> After you, you walk up, bang, and just walk away. Yeah. And now what that represents to me is killer track number one, no gap mm-hmm. to number to track number mm-hmm. two. Good. No mm-hmm. gap. And so you've got to find a song that's going to be of a it's got to be one of the top five tracks on your, on your album. Sure. And so songs one, two, and three. In the 80s, I'd always put the single as number three, what was going to be the single. Right, if yes. It had, if, it had, if it had already been a single, I'd put it further down the list so that would pick up any slack. Not right. that I'd allowed passengers on most. I'm, I've had passengers on some records, mm-hmm. but most of the time it, it, I, I don't have passengers. And it gets back to the way we record as well. I'm a very big believer in melody and feel. But anyway, you were going to tell me your philosophy. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you, with you completely. I prefer the first track to not be a single because I think that's cheating a little bit. I'd like the first track totally. to just... And, and my favorite, my pick for the best track one of all time is actually Guns in the Sky by NXS on the oh, yeah. album. Oh, totally. Great, great, great choice. Yes, and I and great I've choice. always felt that way. Not just getting ready to talk to you. I've been saying that for years. And I don't think yeah, yeah. maybe in certain parts of the world that was a, that was a single. But if it was, it was like the fifth or sixth single. You know what I mean? Well, you know, to, just to validate your point, go and look at Live at Wembley. Mm-hmm. Have you seen Ben Excess Live at Wembley? Well, is that different than the Live Baby Live or Live Baby Live? Because I have. That. Yeah, yeah, the video. Okay. The original video of that. Okay. Have you got the, the video no. of that? No, huh? Go to YouTube. Okay. And look, go in excess live baby live video, and what that is different than the album. What the live baby live is is one concert, shot in uh, Wembley Stadium. Got it. And we got accused of overdubbing everything and redoing the vocals. The only overdub I did on it was two bars of bass. Mm-hmm. And one bar of trumpet where the, the bug mic uh, fucked up. Mm-hmm. That's the only overdubs. Mixed it all at Air Studios in London over a weekend to just Michael's video of Michael, you know, because I got David Mallett was directing. And so by that, when I was mixing, they hadn't put it all together. So they just gave me a copy of Michael's video in sync. And we so the camera that followed Michael. So I mixed the whole fucking thing to that. Mm-hmm. But it sounds great. 
Uh, so yeah, but the point is, what do you think the first song is? Our guns in the you, sky. Got, exactly. <laughs> and you and you watch, and it's the only concert that they can remember where they didn't do "Don't Change" the last song. Really? Huh? Yeah, but but you've got to watch this okay. seriously. You've got if you haven't seen it, you've got to, YouTube at it YouTube right in excess live at Wembley, and okay. and it, the way it starts with John Farris. Yeah. And just from behind, it's and it just goes into this field, and all of a sudden it turns into guns in the sky. It's just fuck it. The whole concert's magic because it goes Probably. from day into night, so you get the lights. Michael has never sung better. Yeah. And, you know, we were all, you know, backstage at Wembley before cheering each other up, you know, cleared the room. There's only like seven of us in there. You know, it kicked everyone out from supermodels to the Rolling Stones, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, and do our little, you know. Yeah football coach team talk stuff you know it's not like that it's not where you sit around down just go around and have a quiet word to people and sure. i'll never forget hutch coming up to me just before that and, and coming over and said check this out and he just clipped his walkman headphones on my discman headphones just on my head mm-hmm. and he was playing the massive attacks yeah album I, blue lines you mentioned that that's one of you my know. favorite albums of all time as well oh fuck yeah same yeah same. yeah <laughs> And and that was a, and he got had a pre-release copy. I mean, yeah. fuck me. Oh. And, and I'm listening to this, and then he puts an E into my hand. and He says, "The stairs, the oh. stairs, uh-huh. during the stairs." <laughs> but okay. it's it's a great show. It's the best in excess show I have ever seen. I've mm-hmm. seen a lot of them. Yeah. And uh, it is just so tight. Okay. There are no, you know, there's no overdubs. The vocals are just to die for. The presence, the whole show, beginning to end. I mix it in two large, like two large songs, the whole show. Okay. And um, but uh, anyway, yeah. so yeah, that's so uh, Guns in the Sky. Yeah, it's that's, used as the, the start to first track to I that think. video. Yeah. Okay. So uh, 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 so you enjoy it, believe okay, me. Okay. Good. And the, the feels different. Everything. Go on. Good. Sorry. I well, no, it. that's fine. This is great. I I have that album, but I've never watched the the uh, concert. Yeah. No. Forget the album. The album was okay, but that because. Yeah. We used, we were forced because we didn't have Wembley in time, mm-hmm. so we had to go with stuff from Argentina, and we had to go with stuff that. But the, 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 you know, it's okay, mm-hmm. but it doesn't. It's it's nowhere near as good as just one show. Okay. If we'd had done that before, we you know managed cool. to did the show while the album was coming out. Got it. You okay. know, so we were able to. So we said, "Oh fuck, man, it's the same thing, basically." Yeah. Let's do a live version of it. And this is it, you know. And we, yeah. there was a, a live video of the live album, but we. Just one shot and call yeah, it the same yeah. thing. Okay, so let's talk about in excess. I, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm of the opinion that they are one of the greatest rock bands ever, and I, um, it bothers me that more people. I think some people kind of view them as a little bit of like a flash in the pan. They had well, there was steady work. Yeah. I'm st- I'm maybe from Americans, and I think too they get discounted a little bit almost because their songs are too poppy as if writing a perfect yeah. pop song is not a stroke of genius as it is. Yes. You know what I mean? No, I think there are reasons. I think there are reasons. I think, you know, uh, there are clear reasons. I mean, we built well. and We did Shibu Shibar in what was that? I don't know, 72, Don't Change, and you know, all those.
it was some great songs. And again, that ra- kind of running order that I like, just just to make the whole thing flow. Uh, but um, and you know, don't change. Took off in the colleges. As did the one thing took off in the colleges. Um, The thing with any success, I mean, at one point you'd walk into the agent's office in New York and there are two names on the wall, U2 and in excess, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. both as big as each other, mm-hmm. you know, this, and because I was early in U2's career, mm-hmm. but they saw these two bands as, these are key bands, this, these are going to be world beaters and the thing. The, and the thing that I think we're in excess made a couple of errors. Um, they did such a, I mean, they did such a huge album with Kick mm-hmm. that they needed to follow it with Not X. Welcome to Wherever You Are was needed straight away, right at that point, yep. right after, right after Kick, because Kick had gone so well, and then they'd come out with a sort of watered down version of Kick with X, except for Suicide Blonde. Suicide Blonde was killer, but that if we had Suicide Blonde on Welcome Wherever You Are. But and then of course when we did release that, they've gone X, so that hasn't impressed anyone because it's like, well, it's sort of like Kick, but it's not mm-hmm. as good. Mm-hmm. Then we've done Welcome, and then the fuckers decided just the, not to tour. Oh, I had enough touring, yeah. and I'm thinking to myself, it's so silly. Yeah. It just ended the modern age of touring, where you could have the most amazing sets for this particular album, mm-hmm. and not only that, you've got an incredible back catalogue to keep throwing in all the time. Right. You know, so it's so the album, and but they didn't tour on it. Yeah. Didn't tour on on that particular album, and after after because I toured heavily on X, and and sort of you know, mm-hmm. sort of tour worked well, but the album didn't. Uh, doing creative shifts at the wrong time, and they right. did not like Kick when they finished Kick. And you had said you that, weren't a big fan of Kick either. No, it's too poppy. Yeah, too poppy. It's no, it's not crazy. It's it's a, it's a little. Knowing what they're capable, Andrew Ferris is a musical genius. Yes, he is. I mean, I did love, uh, I did love, um, uh, um, obviously, did a little lift, did it, new sensation, no, new sensation, and also I like um, the, the the other hit they had off it. But yeah, by and large, uh, yeah, they, I mean they're all good. But then again, then they, but the trouble is, they're great, but you, you leave it, you know, don't try and write the Never Tear Us Apart again and call it The Stairs. In a room above, a 
you know, and that's I think what they just they, they fell for the commercial cherry just a little too early. And um, had they stuck to the guns and even not done kick, uh, um, or, and and it hadn't done as well, had done half as well, uh, but with being a, a touch more esoteric, rather, you know, and it, mm-hmm. good song, keep all the good songs, no question about that, mm-hmm. but get a little darker in places as well, to, to pretty, and that's the thing that the darkness was missing, I think, from even you know from um, Never Tear Us Apart wasn't yeah. dark. Right, you know, and uh, you know, well, people get married to that fucking song. They do, they do. But I think about—I mean, I compare in excess. I think about a band like Depeche Mode, who have mm-hmm. um, had a similar kind of arc. You know, a couple sort of dodgy first. Yeah, I agree with that. And then they yeah, sort yeah, of, yeah. you know, over time figured out a sound, stumbled on a sound, and they got better mm-hmm. and better as they went. And then they hit a peak with you know, Violator and maybe even Songs of Faith and Devotion. And then it's sort of tapered mm. off since then. But uh, they're still being considered for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There's, they, and yeah. what I think is maybe the difference is that there's an American writer who's like a rock critic, kind of culture writer named Chuck Klosterman. And he made the, I was reading something he wrote a few years ago that it's more important to have a small, have fewer people love you a lot than it is to have a lot of people like you a lot yeah absolutely and i absolutely. think that might be what the deal with in excess is is that there aren't enough I, 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 yeah, love yeah exactly passionate. right no you're yeah. right you're absolutely correct because what they got onto was the radio songs when yeah. kick came out right they weren't there before right they turned up only when the, those radio songs came out and then oh they're all you know oh, that's over now what's 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 next yeah. And the other thing, of course, that hit them, you know, after we did Welcome and then Not Touring, which I think is a mistake because Welcome is their favourite album. Mm-hmm. Man, Every man and boy in that band, their favourite album is Welcome to Wherever You Are because it's a serious attempt at, at music, music and, you know, and doing it correctly. And again, you can tell I'm involved because it's a bit like Shabu Shabar, the way it runs and, and yep. all that and, and that kind of stuff. And that's the difference between me and Chris. He's a lot more commercial. That's fine. Love doing that, you know. Good on you. Make a fortune. But I just love music, you know, and helping get music to another area if I can. And sort of Chris does as well. Great mates. I haven't seen him for years. Yeah, so it's, yeah. I don't know what's going now, on. Now, I, um, I also think, this is nitpicking, but I also think Welcome to Wherever You Are has a terrible cover. You got somebody's good looking yes. Michael Hutchins. You should put his face true, on there true. somewhere. Yeah, no, no, you know that, that, I mean? that's true. Probably, uh, no, no, I won't argue with that. I mean, I think it's a good cover per se. But not for but the next 
But I agree with you, 100%. Yeah. And that's when, when we did the cover for Live Baby Live, you know, when Michael's from the back mm-hmm. standing in the crowd. Yep. Uh, the, the photographer came to me and said, you know, they won't let me use it. What do you reckon of this? And I said, fuck, man, that's the cover. It's got to uh-huh. be the cover shot. And he said, yeah, the, the band won't let me use it. And I said, why? And they said, because oh, it's just Michael. And, and, and it's not the band. And I said, that's true, it's just Michael. But you can't buy the energy that's in that shot. Yeah. You just can't. Exactly. You know, that wall of people behind him, you know, I think, don't know if they blotted out the, the, the film camera, you know, and him in the Jesus Christ position, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm saying, man, this has just got, you, you, I know you're in the band, but, and I know you pissed off half of you because you're on the back of the kick cover, you know. Right, right. One member in particular was on the back of the kick cover instead of the front. They obviously they put the three handsome guys on the front and not right. so handsome on the back. Poor Andrew. And, uh, <laughs> exactly, well, yeah, well, I'm not saying anything, but you got it right. I know. Well, and, I, um, I know. You've got two of the best-looking brothers and, in history, and you're and, the and, musical genius. And, yeah, that's right. And Andrew's sort of like, you know, and, and, and he was obviously like, mind you, he's, it's his band. Fuck yeah. it, man. Him and Michael. I mean, the, the only problem with Inexcess is really was that when Michael died, Andrew didn't have a valve on him mm. to go, no, that's crap. No, that's good. No, that's yeah. crap. No, yeah. that's good. Let me write lyrics for that one, you know. Yeah. And Andrew just kept doing his musical, just running off from the, you know, wherever he went. So, yeah. but didn't, wasn't in excess anymore, you know what I mean? So, for me, when Michael died, Inexcess had died a little before. Uh, in excess for me, I, I I wasn't in love with their last album. I did with Michael, that's for sure. Um, I didn't mind them, and again, I I feel like elegantly wasted. I just too harshly. I feel like another band. True, like but, uh, but put out a band, an album like that, get away with it. But you know? but to put out uh, being in excess and being slightly on the downhill because of Nirvana's and everyone else right. coming. Right. In, and calling your album elegantly wasted, uh-huh. I don't think that's a good marketing move. Yeah. I really don't. I really don't, yeah, you know, because it's it, it, it's it's such a, it makes you look like fatuous and rich and mm-hmm. and you know uh, I live in gold chairs and I wear gold pajamas to bed. I'm always arrogant to waste, but you know, and that's that's the impression it would give as a title to anybody. Right. So I didn't think that was, and again, that's my marketing going back to capital and all that sort of stuff right. uh, coming into play. I, and you know, Christian outfits, school uniforms, whatever, right. uh, copying Angus. I'm just ripping off Angus, sure. you know, and all that stuff. Uh, so it's some, um, you know, but the stuff you learn, you know, and you just put yeah. to play. Yeah. You know, as you... I actually think uh, Full Moon, Dirty Hearts is a much better record than it gets. Um, 
Oh, I agree. And, and the big problem with that that I had with that was um, after doing the record and spending a lot of time on it and doing the running order, uh, a couple of people in the band, not the lead singer and not the keyboard player okay. and not the drummer. Okay. And probably not the saxophone player. Um, <laughs> okay. And, uh, 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 We're down to decided, Gary, too. No, no. Yeah, <laughs> I'll exactly. I'll say it. You don't have to. Uh, 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 and, and got in the manager, Murphy's here, and, everyone, uh, and just said, oh, we've got to put all the rocks on. We've got to be more like Nirvana, you know. We've got to go, we've got to get with the times. Mm-hmm. You know, dumb stuff. Stuff that Morrison and, and um and uh, Robin Gibb used to say to Barry Gibb, and Barry would say, shut the fuck up and right. just write songs, right. you know, and, and just sing. Yeah. Just do, what you, do your job, yeah. you know. But Gary, uh, well, I'm not saying Gary, but, the, it, but the, you One know. Of them. They, and I had I, And I had this running order that was beautiful. Really? Beautiful, like Kill the Pain, you know, and stuff like that. Everything just, like, it started with, um, turn the red light on. Yes. Tell them that you've gone Leave behind your fears You know they can't be wrong Kill the pain you feel Kill the pain you feel Seeing some things that you in your dreams. Your face it tells the story. The page is stained with tears. You kill the pain. No, you know, but I started soft and I ended it with the the uh, the other version of. Uh, the softer song in the end, but I had this whole running it was just flowed so well huh. you know and it, it was hardly any gaps between the tracks all the keys just flowed into everything it was pizza and, and, they, and what happened is they just turned it into a bunch of songs mm. yeah. you know the other bummer was that when we, with Ray Charles that the song we wanted to sing was Please You've Got That Need
he chose another one. Yeah. You know, and me and Michael and I had the idea originally when we were in Paris, wandering around the studio, and the guy said, "Oh, Ray Charles' music is recorded here." We go, "Fuck, Ray Charles, my favourite singer of all time." Yeah. And, he, and Michael says, "Yeah, fuck, it'd be great if he sang. I reckon we can get him." You know, and uh, uh-huh. and we did. So Michael and I went over and sat with Ray at Ray's house for a few days. Uh-huh. But anyway, yeah. so the song he did wasn't the one we wanted him to do, but you know, right. it's Ray Charles, what he did. Yeah. So, so yeah, and again, I think the, the 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 touring aspect of that, they hadn't toured on on the album before, which they had this great catalogue. You two do it, you, you know, Joshua Tree, they put out their version, sure. you know, of Welcome to Every Hour was Joshua Tree, for fuck's sake. And yeah. they just toured the shit out of it, right. had all the other songs to throw in, Good Night Nurse. Or not Joshua Tree, uh, Europa or Europa or one right, of those, right, you know. Right. And, but throw, you know, and, and that stage you could just throw everything at the tour because you had mm-hmm. digital, you had everything like that. You could, and, and these guys are crazy not doing that because they could have had an amazing set with Welcome and done, had an amazing uh, set list. Very true. You know, just from all the, all the, from kick and Great. backwards and then Welcome as well and, and doing, you know, anyway, it doesn't matter. So sure. it's, life is life. Yeah. choices are made yeah it's too bad um yeah i've always i, I mean anything they do i'm gonna give it um i'm gonna look on the positive side you know i like the messenger yes. on uh the messenger is one of yeah, my, maybe my favorite song on the full moon album yeah, yeah. that's great but... I like that. I like that. Um, yeah. Now tell people why Gary is Gary Gary Beers. Because he decided not to be Gary Beers and he would call himself Gary Gary Beers. <laughs> but, I, I, but didn't somebody I, miss, it may have come out, that on a flyer I, or something once? Well, I, I just think someone just said it once. Oh. Like they said, Gary, Gary, like you called him twice. And he might have turned around and said, who's calling me Gary Gary? I don't know, you know, something like that. It's simple as that. Okay. That's what. That's, that, that's why, because it's, it's all been. That's always. Well, that's what I've always been, assumed and known it as, anyway. Okay. Okay. I mean, I I know they're one of the biggest bands in Australian history, but something we talk about on here sensitively is the business side of things. I mean, are the mm-hmm. are the rest of the guys kind of set for life? Is that are they fine because of their success, or is there some? Well. Uh, you know, I, 
uh, look, it's hard to tell, really. I mean, because you don't know how much tour promotion money they took out in advances and things like that. Uh, you know, I know I get. I'm on a royalty stream, and I still from the work I did with them, and you know, it's all done officially, and etc. etc. Mm-hmm. Through that. Mm-hmm. But um, I'd say the lion's share would go to Andrew Farris and Mike and Michael Hutchins' estate. Sure. sure. You know, because of the lyric writing and publishing, you know, and every time it's used in an ad or, or whatever, it's like, it's. And I think what happened when they wrote "Kick," yeah, well, I know what happened is that they said to the band, uh, and Michael and Andrew said, "You guys don't worry about writing any songs. Michael and I are just going to write the songs. Hmm. It's Andrew or whoever spoke it. Uh, don't worry, we'll give you a cut." And so I think they've got money, but they haven't, uh, you know, I'm sure they have yeah. whatever their investments have been over life because they've made good money from fees playing. Mind you, they didn't make any money from the Wembley show you're, you're going to watch. Oh, really? Not, no, they, we spent it all on production. Oh. The whole lot. That's wow. why it's so good. Wow. And that, again, that, again, Chris Murphy. Chris okay. Murphy, okay. When, when he said to the band, and I was there, I said, yeah, yeah, we're going to film it. And oh, by the way, we're using your entire fee and more just to do it, do this. Wow. And they're going, what? Yeah. <laughs> and, he said, wow. and, and he said, believe me, this will work. And man, fucking killed. Okay. It just It's one of the greatest rock concerts you will ever see. Oh, I can't uh, wait. I, cool. It really is. And I can say that without fear or favor. And because it goes from day into night, there's one section there when they're starting to play um, New Sensation where there's 200,000 people going up and down programs. helicopter shot the whole thing and then as it goes into night and then what how michael ends the show yeah unbelievable okay oh i can't wait good okay um it's the best one you'll ever see of any i believe it i believe it uh Mm. i only got to see them once i grew up in salt lake city utah and that's nobody goes through there um but they came i saw Mm. them probably four three or four months before he died and that was uh the last time finally or the one and only time no that's a good yeah, it worked. Yeah. Um, now tell us the good times story from the Lost Boys because my regular listeners yeah, okay. know I've had several people from that soundtrack on the show because I love it so much. And yeah. uh, Good Times is maybe the best song on the soundtrack. Mary, Mary, you're on my mind. Folk, 
Tell me the story oh, yeah. about how this happened. Uh, well, we were, were looking at, not me, in excess, the vinyls, all these bands that I produced, basically, the models, the Saints, I'd mix them. Um, I'm talking Kate Sobrano's band, hadn't worked with them at that point. But anyway, they decided, Chris, and again, Chris Murphy decided, why don't we do an Australian-made tour? All these US and UK tours coming and clean up. Why don't we tour with, we've got now international acts. We can headline with In Excess, followed by Jimmy Barnes, you know, followed by the Divinals, followed by the Models, all had an international success at this point and massive Australian success. Mental as anything I'd worked with, um, the Saints and, um, and uh, the Triffids were all on, on the bill. And so what we decided, you know, like at some point, because we were running, the show, when I say we, Murphy was running the show, but basically, you know, I was aiming up to my neck because we're going to have to record everything, going to have to whatever, you know, mm-hmm. for whatever. And we needed a song to promote the show. So Jimmy and I lived down in a place called Barrel, which is south of Sydney. It's, it's a Highland area, mm-hmm. you know, just a little cooler than Sydney, but up high, very old. It's where the people in the 1800s go for their holidays and have their big houses, wooden houses. Okay. A bit like, I guess, mm-hmm. in Maine or something, I don't know. Yeah, that Boston sort of up, up a Anyway, it was a nice area. And so we'd go, we'd go into the studio, about 100 clicks out of Sydney. And, and, and we were talking about the song and we decided, and it was just in excess camp, said, you know, turn up your radio. Masters Apprentices, perfect song. Mm-hmm. I probably don't know the Masters, but they were a band in the 60s who were fantastic subway at the time. Okay. And had the song called Turn Up Your Radio, and they were right into it. And so, and, and I wasn't so sure about it, and Jimmy wasn't saying much. And then um, on the day of going up to the studio to do whatever we were going to do, Mark Pope, who was Jimmy's manager at the time, turned up to the audience and I got Glenn A. Baker to put together some songs because I'm not happy about, you know, turn up your radio, let's have a listen to what else. Anyway, good times came on and we went, fuck. And I said, of course, that Van Duren Young wrote the fucking song. Yeah, right. I was passing right back to Van Duren Young. I said, and I, and and not only that, I talked to him about that particular song when that, when when the Easy Beats did, and I said, how the fuck did you get that high vocal, you know, in there? Mm-hmm. And gonna have a good time tonight. Right. And I said, oh, that was easy. Stevie Marriott was working in the next studio, so he came and sang the choruses for us. Mm-hmm. And that small faces, Steve Marriott. Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, amazing. how good is that? Yeah, and then so when you listen to the Easy Beats version, you go, "Fuck, that's Steve Marriott." Yeah, you know, right in the middle of Itchy Coop Park, Tin Soldier Days, all that. And um, and so I thought to myself, you know, that's Jimmy. He sings that pitch just perfectly. Right. In you know, the Steve Steve Marriott part, go oh, have a good time tonight. And so we said, let's duet it. Instead of doing one verse at a time, let's do a line at a time. Uh, did that, and we just worked on it against everyone. Just got shit faced out of it. Timmy Farris didn't turn up because he'd gone fishing, so we got Peter Keld <laughs> from Jimmy's band to, to play piano, and it's yeah. just the best piano playing. The yes, only piano player. That sure he's dead now, unfortunately, he committed suicide mm. um, in '97. But just killer track, you know. Yeah. And I put acoustics all over it, you know, to, to pump it and do all that sort of stuff. And so that's how the track was born. And then we needed the B-sides because in those days you had B-sides and Andrew had a bit of music, but no one had any lyrics. And everyone was, you know, so I just went, I said, don't worry, leave it to me. And I went and got all our old Time magazines, right? Mm-hmm. And I opened them all up, uh, and one in particular, and I just said, now, we're, these guys have spent hours writing the first 
line, you know, the headline of the article in Time Magazine, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what we've got to do, boys. You know, because I knew Bowie just throwing words up and done that sort of stuff. Yep. Yep. So just let's fucking just nick that. that one there. And there was a there was a thing called they're laying down the law in Queensland. Mm-hmm. Laying down the law. That sounds pretty good. So we used that as a title and then went right through the thing, just choose that line, choose that line, choose that line, bang, song, done. And that's on Lost Boys as well. Yeah. I love that song too. Jimmy, um, as yeah. a kid, I mean, I think I was like 14 years old or something. And, yeah. uh, but we basically made it up on the fly. I mean, that is you can, incredible. You know, yeah. Our, 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 all the lyrics come from Time Magazine or it's just been massaged. Right. Once I got all the lyrics, I gave them to Michael and Jimmy. I said, well, here you go. <laughs> His words. Now, you put them in any order you like, yeah. change them, massage them, you know, so they glue together. And it did. And it worked. Yeah, that's great. Now you had, mm. uh, I think, you had mentioned somewhere in there about getting like a hundred and thirty thousand dollar royalty check or something. How, what's the story on that? I mean, the the soundtrack sold a lot, but you weren't aware of that. No, I wasn't aware at all. Yeah, wasn't aware at all until I, I um, you know, I was just getting my regular royalties for the albums that I'd done, and, and I just and this, I met this, the track had gone number one in Australia, mm. good times, and so I was getting a, a royalty from that. But um, it wasn't until I read in the paper about a year later that it was on the, the soundtrack of um, Lost Boys, mm-hmm. and they both were on the soundtrack of Lost Boys, and they'd gone and the album sold two million copies. Yeah. And I'm going, you're fucking not serious. And so I just got on the phone and said, uh, I think there's been some sort of problem here, you know. And so just all this money turned up. So when you made that song, it was not explicitly for the Lost Boys soundtrack. It just had to be used. Lost Boys didn't even exist at that stage. We made it for a tour called Australia Made. It was made solely for that. That is crazy. Just for that tour. And then the thing was, though, Armit Erdogan heard it. Uh, Someone just happened to play it to Armit. And he said, that's fucking rock and roll. That's right up his alley, all that piano stuff. Sure. And and so he's going, now that's fucking rock and roll. Yeah. That is killer. You know, we've got to do something to send it to Clear Mountain to mix. And Clear, you know, and I'm... Him out and my mates, you know, yeah. and so and so he did a mix of it, and but it was sort of a bit watered down. So I think we went with mine in the end, but um, huh. it's not, such not a great sure song. Both those songs are great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, cool. 
Well, now, speaking of good times, we have to talk about the Hoodoo Gurus. Um, yes. Blow Your Cool. Uh, first of all, I think they're one of the best, under most underrated pop rock bands ever. Um, yeah. Now, I know you had a bad experience with them, which even well, while reading cool. it, I was, trying I, to, I was confused. Why? Because I think I was, Blow Your Cool is probably their best album. It's a masterpiece. Yeah, I, I, I was totally amused by it all. But the reason it happened, and, and I think I say it in the book, they originally signed to Big Time Records, which is, and they, and when they signed, they were just a young band, and they just signed their life away, basically, mm. to Big Time, which was run by a couple of guys who weren't, what I'd say, the best of what they do, and slightly shady. Mm-hmm. And in the end, they sold it on to Electra, the contract. Mm-hmm. Okay. The full contract. So yeah. all of a sudden, the band assigned, Electra wanted them, mate. But they didn't want them to sound like that. They said, look, they're great. They're kicking the colleges to death. Sure. Let's see if we can get them into stadiums. Uh, okay. So we need a different kind of album. And, and of course, they knew, of, uh, Alexa knew of me through In Excess and all that sort of stuff. And they said, well, we should give this open guy and get him involved. And so In Excess's lawyer rang me from New York and said, and, and he was also at the time, Bill Leibowitz, very famous name in music law now, okay. was uh, attorney, attorney to Atlantic Records. He was the main attorney. And he rang me and said, look, you know, they want you to do it. You know, and I said, you know, so I've got the, the attorney of Atlantic calling me. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, Bill, sure, fuck it, why not? Love the gurus, you know. I mean, it's not my favourite music because it's, mm-hmm. it's a bit sort of innocent pop, but, you know, I hear what you want, what the record company wants to do. They want to go into stadiums. And so I thought, fantastic, you know, and I was away doing something. I've come home to the first rehearsal to meet the band. And I've got a bit of a frosty reception, you know, and I turned and I thought, oh, yes, just nerves, you know, whatever, you know. And uh, listen, I said, oh, yes, great, play all the songs, yeah, fantastic. And I left with Michael Martin, the manager, and I said, yeah, it's strange. He said, oh, yes. Uh, and then when we started recording, it, it, you know, I did everything to try and do good things, you know. And I mean, I met on the first day here, for example, uh, the drummer came up and said, I just want to play all the songs by myself. Yeah. And I said, and I, said I, I don't do click tracks. I said, no, no, I don't need a click track. I know how the songs go. I put all the cymbals and the tonsils in the right place. I said, what about just the bass player? He said, no, no, no. And what about Dave? He said, definitely not. And uh, I just want to, if I play them, they'll be right. They'll be in time. I won't be confused by everybody else. They'll be right. Uh-huh. And I said, fair enough. And so for two days, I just recorded drums. Never done that before or since. And then had to make it sound like a live band on the top, and which we did. We uh-huh. yeah, what's my scene and stuff like that. It, yeah. That sounds like yeah, the band track's recorded and he's done a vocal and Bobby Uncle and far from it. Huh. Yeah. 
and, and it was during, you funny talk about good times because during that, that session, and I was doing an overdub with uh, David in, uh, Faulkner in the control room of my engineer, all right, that a drunken George Young walked in, burst into the control room because we were recording at Albert's in their new studio. And I'd just played them good times the morning before, mm-hmm. and I knew how much they hated covers. Mm-hmm. And he was pissed, and he came in and just he shook my hand and said, mate, fucking great job, fucking great job, mm-hmm. you know, about good times. And, I, and then turned on his heel and wobbled out, <laughs> which is like, you know, the, I've, I've had two great compliments in my time, and that's certainly one. Right. Yeah, so we did that. But then I realised, of course, and I'm speaking to them, that, you know, they had no control over anything. Mm. They were just being told what to do. And, you know, this is here recording, you know, yeah. whatever. And I had, and I wouldn't have worked under those circumstances. I thought they must have wanted me to do it or whatever. So I just proceeded on, basically. And the, the manager was the one that got us through it, Michael McMartin, by leaning over my shoulder saying, sounds great, sounds fucking great, sounds great, sounds great, sounds fucking great, you know. And... um and my engineer and I were both looking at each other saying, you know, well, I guess we can always get taxi licenses after this, because <laughs> we could, you know, without this, with Dave being, you know, totally into it, what we were doing, we just said this would be a flop. Yeah. And uh, anyway, it came out, what's my scene, bang, straight up the charts, sure. the album worked, and they hated it. I mean, they hated it. And I now, of course, they, well, now they love it. Yeah. Isn't it funny? You know, you know, Dave thinks it's fantastic. He thinks what's my scene wouldn't change a thing, would not change a thing. Jeez. And yet the, the grief he gave me over that, you just wouldn't read about it. That is... Yeah, it was quite weird. You know, a lot of people have commented on it, you know, and um, uh, uh, as well. Mm-hmm. But, but it's the truth. You know, yeah. I've got no reason to bullshit. That's weird. It's too bad. Um, now, we have to talk about another one of my all-time favorite bands, The Ocean Blue. Yeah. You had mentioned oh, that that was, I think in the book, you had mentioned that was like the one time you went and like groveled for a job because you heard their uh, demo totally, or something totally. and knew that this is something you wanted 100%. to do. 100%. Yeah. 100%. I, I was working in um, Australia at the time and uh, and I was at my Sydney hotel poolside, which is very rare, you know, because there was a breakdown at the studio or something like that. And so I took the opportunity to listen to what my management, uh, Sandy Robertson, had sent me from um, World's End in, in L.A. 
And I listened to the Ice and Blue. I said, fuck, man, it's like a cross between the Smiths and, um, oh, it's really hard to describe the sound. Sure. It was pure, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, but we didn't have, it wasn't depressing like the Smiths or anything, right. but it, it, it was pure. It was yeah. like pure, bouncy pure, but in a good way. Not Yes, it was sort of poppy, but it, it was totally written with intent, if you yeah. know what I mean. And so, yeah, and so, um, and I wanted it. And so I rang Sam and said, yeah, I want to do this record. She said, gee, I don't know, there's someone else in line. you got to, would you, t- what, uh, you know, Seymour Stein wants, you know, mm-hmm. you know, to sound good, you know. I said, well, why don't Seymour and I do a meeting? And he said, well, and he said, well, I'll do it. When do you want to do it? And so I just, it, Sandy rang me back about, you know, 20 minutes later. He said, gee, you'll do one on Friday. And I'm in Sydney. I said, no problem. <laughs> and so I, I flew uh, directly from Sydney to New York, got to New York at uh, nine o'clock at night. We went to my hotel on Times Square, that big run with a big atrium. Uh-huh. I hate the place, but I stayed there. Um, uh, at 10 o'clock next morning, there was a Warner Brothers car waiting for me downstairs. Wow. Took me straight, you know, a couple of blocks, whatever it is, to, you know, uh-huh. Rockefeller Plaza. I was ushered up into Seymour's office. Mm-hmm. Spoke with Seymour for an hour, and he, he could not believe that I'd flown all the way from Australia because I wanted to gig, and I was in the middle of an album as, as it was. And he knew my track record, and what I've done is, mate, you're going to do this record for us. And then, then at three, and by three o'clock the same day, I was on, mm-hmm. I was at JFK on a Pan Am flight out to LA to connect back to Australia. Crazy. Now, did they know who yeah, you yeah. were? I mean, were they aware yeah, of the well, things you've done? Well, when, when my management, I'm sure that would have been, and when my management said, look, can we do an interview with Mark? He's done this, he's done that, and he's done that. You know, and they would oh, fuck, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course we'll take an interview, a, a meeting with him. And when I, then when I just flew over and just, you know, mm-hmm. could only see, you know, this is when he was available. They were much impressed with that. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so, yeah, you know, it was worth the effort. And plus, I got to work with him. It's great. So, it's such an easy album to do. Good. Probably the easiest album I've ever done. I easy. love them so e- much. Um, now, I have, a, I have a question about one of the particular songs. So, let's take Drifting Falling, for instance. Great, great mm-hmm. song. I love that song. It announces itself so nicely with that uh, saxophone riff at the beginning. 
And I'm curious if that's something like that. Is that a decision that you make as the producer where you think, guys, I think this is a nice you know, flourish? No. Or do they come in no. saying the song starts I'll, with I'll the sax it. thing and then we're going to go from there? In, in, in Ocean Blue's case, I saw very little. You know, I said, okay, what, I, what I'm looking for in the studio is a band to be a band. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons I don't use click tracks. Mm-hmm. You want to be a band? but You don't put your single hat on. You don't put your album hat on. You don't put your record hat on. You put your band hat on, just like you do on stage, mm-hmm. and you play your best. You know, get rid of all the other, other crap out of your head because it doesn't, it doesn't work. So I always, you know, I'll have suggestions that I've worked out, listening to the stuff that, okay, if that doesn't work, we can do this, we can do that, we can do this, or whatever. But always, because it's a question of trust and respect, I, I'll put the band in and I'll say, let's, let's just play some songs, boys, as we're getting some sounds, you know, and once we're getting the sounds up, I still record everything. And and, and so they get comfortable with it, the situation, they're playing as a band, and then I'll get them, okay, let's play the songs. And by and large, with the Ocean Blue, I didn't change anything. Really? Okay. By and large. It was a case, really, of, okay, this sound is so pure and nice mm-hmm. and good. Mm-hmm. Don't fuck it up with, with, with tricks. Yeah. You know, or, or uh, and when I say tricks, I'm talking, uh, you can use subtle tricks, like sure. as you, it, it may have been the uh, saxophone cascading, might have been my idea, might not, you know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, but you know, the obvious hooks and stuff like that. But these guys, like David Shell's on he's so good. I love him. And, uh, and they all, Bobby Denton, uh, Rob Minig, what a fucking genius he was, yeah. a drummer. I mean, yeah. they got him out of Reading. I mean, his stuff, I mean, I, I, I took his albums home that he made mm. and tried to get them released here. They were just so fucking good. Wow. Just brilliant albums that are just on another planet you know yeah, like, it's like yeah. his, his own albums are like B-52's meets Talking Heads wow I don't and think I knew just, that I don't just, know if I've ever heard and, them uh, well you wouldn't have because no one ever released them he oh, just okay. made them for himself and, and, okay. and gave me uh, a copy of each Rob interesting stuff. and uh, and of course with the other keyboard player Steve um, yeah I can't I remember being in, uh, in New York and and uh, uh, gee, I was working on stuff with John Valentine Carruthers and the guy from Killing Joke, this experimental album, you know, that we did in New York. And I bought, and we were down, me and John Valentine Carruthers, we were walking down the street, and uh, one night about eight o'clock, and there's fucking Steve in a department store, not in, in a hip clothes store. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, oh, yeah, I left the band, you know, all that. Okay, we got to talk about Kiss. Um, mm-hmm. they, uh, you know, they're just such a light, they're just so much fun to talk about, whether you like totally them or great. not, they're fun to talk about, you know, totally. and, uh, the story you were telling about having to do overdubs with Paul and he's watching mm-hmm. the video of their, um, what was the, is it, it's not the, is it the Sydney orchestra that they performed with? Melbourne, 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 that's it. Melbourne. Yep. Mm-hmm. I have that album, but I haven't listened to it for a while. So they perform with the Melbourne mm-hmm. Symphony Orchestra. And he's doing yep. overdubs in the studio, and he's not paying mm-hmm. attention. He's only paying attention to himself on screen. That's the most Paul story I've ever heard. Something like mm-hmm. that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. And, I, and I said, "Fuck the screen. <laughs> yeah. Just sing the fucking song. <laughs> we'll take care of the rest. It's not going to be a lot different." You know, and and I don't think he'd had anyone ever talked to him like that before. Yeah. And I, I said it to him mostly eminently. I said, you know, because I knew what was happening. He was, he, he, it was coming out. Yeah, it was all right, but 
it didn't have the passion that it should have had and, and the way he, he would see it on stage. So, uh, and he was looking at himself. Yeah. I'm going, fuck the screen. <laughs> Sing the fucking song. Yeah. You know, and, uh, so and he was great after that. You know, yeah. and before that, what was even funnier was when, you know, I was starting to do vocals and, and, uh, and Gene was hanging around. I said, oh, Gene, great. Yeah, yeah. He was in the control. Yeah, I'm going to do some vocals. Hang around. It'd be great to get input. And Paul looked at Gene, and Gene looked at Paul with daggers. Yeah. Fucking daggers. That blew me away. In other words, uh, it, it blew me away. And, and I, and I, because I, I thought they must work together, surely. Sure. And I mean, they are, they are kids, those two guys. That's it, you know. Yeah. And, um, and, and it was interesting. And, um, and, I, and so I immediately said, you know what, Gene? Actually, I'd rather do this by myself. If that's cool, if I, I need to, I'll give you a call. You know, so I sort of yeah. bailed them out of right. just getting any further. But, but I could tell when one looked at the other and, and the other looked at the other, just in, in, within one second, I knew that I have yeah. to change things. They just will not uh, which I did. record in front of each other. No, and I didn't know that. And and, and so we did that. And um, and, and Paul was amazing because, you know, his pitch, he's being deaf and, yeah. In one ear, he, he listens through the bone, so you're going to get, if you can develop that, you're going to get really good pitch. You're going to get, you can tell when you're out of pitch. And there was one occasion when my engineer, Tony Wall, setting up behind his Pro Tools, who's fucking amazing, you know, and, and I knew it was out of pitch. Paul sung a bit, and I said, yeah, it's only a little bit out of pitch, but it sounds fucking great. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and I'm giving Tony time to tune it. Right? Yeah. That's what I'm, why I'm talking about. I said, it sounds great. I mean, it's got feel, it's got that. I mean, you do a better one. In the meantime, Tony silently tuned it with uh, Melodyne or something like that. Just the phrase that was a bit out, a tiny bit out. And I said, Tony, play it back to us again. And Paul goes, oh, no, that's great. Yeah, done all that. And so that's, that was cool. But the, one of the best moments I had was definitely with Pete Chris. Yeah. With that, with Pete that, Chris? that moment. Really? The, the drumming. Yeah, yeah. Well, that shut it was out. Uh, it, it was, uh, it, I mean, I had some great moments on that production. You know, I walked out behind Paul one day when he was walking up to his manager. Um, what's his name? Famous rock manager. Looks uh, like Danny DeVito. It's Doc McGee, right? Doc McGee, yeah, Doc McGee. Yeah. And Paul didn't know I was right behind him. I just walked out of the control room to get a bottle of water or something. And, and, and Paul got, got back to me. He's yelling out to Doc. He said, that guy in there? He's got the best year I've ever heard. Eddie Kramer, Eddie Kramer is fucking lucky, <laughs> fucking lucky, and 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 did, and, I, and I just said, fuck me, that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. And um and uh, anyway, so yeah, yeah. It, 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 with Peter Chris, he came in, and his vocal was really out of tune, and he's really upset with it. You know, I'm Beth, mm-hmm. Beth. I hear you, well, you know how it goes. Sure. And I said, mate. I said, look, and I said, you can sing that better. He said, no, I can't. You know, I've got carpal tunnel disease, all, all the, he can hardly hit the drums. They were all samples going on. He was hitting them, but there was firing samples. You know, he was firing samples because he just can't hit hard anymore. Yeah. And it, it, and health wasn't great. He said, right, there's no way I can sing that. I said, i tell you what, man. Uh-huh. I just want you to sing it to me. I'm going to turn the screen off and just sing how you really feel about the song and what I want you to do is just the first verse that's all just do that yeah. and if it works it works if it doesn't we'll leave it as it is he said fair enough I'll do that and so he sang the first verse for me and I said now give us give us a minute 
And so I went out, he went out, and I got Tony and I, and we got um, vocal aligned, and aligned hit the vocal, which just did perfectly with the, the vocal that he'd done live. Mm-hmm. Then we tuned the, the rough bits right out of it, but did it subtly. You don't multi tune it, auto tune it. You got it, you tune tiny sections because mm-hmm. you want to keep the feel, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and we did all that in about 10 minutes. And I said, and then I turned the video on. Played it back, and I said, "Pete, come check this out." And I played him the first verse against the video. He started crying. Oh, he started crying. He started crying, man. He just couldn't believe how good it was. And uh, it was an amazing story, and and that to me is one of the great moments from that album for me. Yeah. I mean, I've had other ones like in sure. Gene Simmons on the last day ringing me up saying, "If I ever go to jail, you're coming with me." That's amazing. And I say, "Why?" Because you, he said, "Because you'll figure a way of getting me out." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, which, but no, working with them was a treat, you know. They, and the thing when when it was here in in Melbourne, then I went to LA for about. Uh, I took Tony Wall, my engineer, with me. And we spent 52 days straight in the studio at A&M. Yeah, 52 days straight. And okay. shortest yeah. would have been 12, 12 hours a day. Because we're dealing with a massive orchestra. Sure. And we've got, and you can't re-overdub an orchestra. And, and you know, David Campbell, you know, multi-Oscar winning mm-hmm. arranger and everything, his headphones are cut out halfway through. Mm-hmm. The noise of the fireworks, no one took into account. No one took into account that the, Peter Chris rises 50 foot in the air so no one can get any timing signature off him. Right. You know, and so there was shit all over the place with the yeah. orchestra. It was great. Yeah. But what I ended up doing was I'd be looking for the same note played in another song mm. and that was in tune and replacing then grabbing no that way. and putting it. Oh, yeah, man. That's I found, so much work. Wait, 50, I took 52 days straight, minimum 12, maximum 18 hours a day. Oh, in the end, we took over the whole project yeah. because we, we, were, we were very unhappy with the visual editing and, and the, where it was going. And, and, and so what I did is I said, look, I hope you don't mind. Tommy, Mo, uh, Tommy Thayer was the, um, the guitar player, was also the, in charge of you know, pulling it together. And great yeah. guy, fantastic mm-hmm. guy. I said, Tommy, I want to call a meeting of all, uh, all the creatives. 
and just because we're you know we're only supposed to be there for two weeks and we've been there for four weeks at the stage and you know eating shit and and I just said look we've got to work as a team guys yeah this is not going to work unless we all are on the same page and what you're sending us is uh, fucking us up because you're using footage from Dallas you're using stuff mm. from here can't do that. And why wasn't there a wide lock-off shot that could always... They didn't have a wide lock-off shot behind the mixer mm-hmm. that could always cut back to. Mm-hmm. So you always get a sweeping shot. Yeah. And um, and so I said, we've got to get uh, less uh, action. You know, I know it's a, at the show it works really well, the fast-paced cutting. It really works well at the show because you've got the full picture in front of you. Mm-hmm. So the vision of the fast cutting doesn't interrupt your... Anytime you want to look at the band, you look at them. That's why you need that wide shot. Anyway, so we spent a lot of time with the editors talking to them about that, and and then we continue on with our job with fixing the orchestra up, and right. you know, and you know, Gene and Paul would drop in. They'd never talk about music. You know, yeah. right. Paul would drop in at lunchtime, and we'd go straight to the dining room and order up some big feast, and that was that, and have yeah. a have a chat about this and that and the other, and because they trusted us, and then Gene yeah. would come in in the evening, say. With a couple of blondes on his arm, <laughs> so, and then and then we would have this incredible musical quiz, and which uh, went on right, for years. Right. Yeah, you mentioned that. It went on for years, and it, where he, uh, you know, he'd say, "Okay, who is so and so? What's their first name?" And I'd say, "Baba, ah, fuck." Yeah. He even rang me from Indiana once and said, "Okay, what's?" And I think I mentioned in the book. Okay, Donovan. Yeah. Singer, what's his last name? Leach. How do you spell it? L e i t c h. One of my favorite things that you mentioned from the book is tell. Okay, tell me, tell us the answer. When you asked Peter, or I'm sorry, when you asked Paul, why did you take off the makeup? What was his answer? Yeah. He so he could put it back on. Yeah, that was profound. Genius. That was such a, a genius statement. Yes. It was. Oh, for me, it was genius. I studied the Coca-Cola experiment in depth. Yes. When Coke changed their flavour. And they said, oh, no, we really, you know, it was genius what Coke did. Yeah. And uh, as you may remember. I do. Uh, Pepsi was catching up big time. So what do we do? We change the taste. Everyone takes us a new taste. Great. So sales go up. What happens? Everyone misses the old Coke. And it's not Coca-Cola advertising. It's the people on the outside saying, we want Coke back. Mm-hmm. Can't get better advertising than that. Mm-hmm. And so what Coca-Cola executives did is held the fucking fire till you see the whites of their eyes. Yeah. We need we need more. We need more. We need more of them to say, we want the Coke back. Once you've got the whole country saying we want the Coke back, then you say, right, over the top. Let's go. Let's yeah. get them. Jeez. And that's the same thing. And, and, I, and, I and I said this to, to, to Paul. He said, oh, no, there's nothing like that. I just thought we should just take the makeup off and get real. And then we could put it back on when we were ready. And I said, yeah, I know. That's what Coke, that was, that's the same thing. And then, then he got it, you know. Yeah. I said, it's pure genius. It yeah. really is. No one would think of that because yeah. it's the, the thing they didn't bargain for when they put the makeup on in the first place and it didn't even enter their heads, it would make them ageless. Mm-hmm. That's it true. It would make them ageless. Good point. And well, it's yes. more than true. It's the biggest point of all. Yeah. It not, it not only creates a brand that's, incredibly visible because it never changes it makes the people performing it ages great example tommy thayer mm-hmm. when when uh, he was a guitar player the main uh, main guitar player in kiss um Ace Ace. yeah sometimes he was so out of it they thought that he wasn't going to make it on, onto the stage tommy would be there hidden away in full uniform 
Yep. Everything I look just in case. Just in case. The thing about Paul and Jean is they own all the kiss faces. Yeah. They own that trademark. As I said in the book, Jean actually owns the US money bag. He could sue anyone if he wanted to with wow. that. The symbol for the US money bag. Mm-hmm. He was telling me he nearly got the smiley smile way back. And there's something else he's got. He's got axe. The word axe, if you refer to a guitar as an axe, he's trademarked that. No way. Really? Yep. Absolutely. And because he's got a, his, he, he calls his bass the axe. Yeah, yeah. So he said, okay, I'll trademark axe. And that way it's mine. Wow. And so all these people around the world doing all the stuff could be seen next week. He doesn't do a thing about it, of course. Yeah. He, he, I will say this about Gene. He's probably the most intelligent guy I've ever met in the business. That's what a lot of you people know, say. Just just in general talking to him, you know, I mean, there is the other side where he'd come in and say he'd throw two 8x10 black and white or colour photographs on the desk while I was working and say, do you like to look at my cousins? They're outside. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they've been chiselled with an sure. inch of their life. Sure. And um, so there's all that. But right. but a, a cool dude, and his wife keeps him in control. He, he, his, wife, his son was good. It was great going up and having dinner at, at Paul's house, for example, and, and him and his girlfriend, you know, and our wife, just... Mm-hmm. You know, and I remember going up there and Tony said to me, shit, what do we get for Paul? We're going up to his house for dinner. I said, we get nothing for Paul. We get flowers for his fucking girlfriend. Yeah, that's, that's what it. we do. That's what you do. And, yes. and I've walked up to him there and Paul's answered, and said, oh, flowers for me. I said, no, actually, they're for, you, for your girlfriend. <laughs> you know, he's cooking the meal. And that just, you can imagine, that just went down gangbusters. Yeah, you know, like good move. Just smooth. fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah smooth is what yeah. it was. I mean, when I said it to Tony, who's no dumb guy, what yeah. do we get for Paul? We, I said, we get nothing. We get flowers for the wife. Uh-huh. He, he, he just said to me, genius. Right, You're right. a fucking genius. That's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let me ask you one more. This is, um, you've talked mm-hmm. a lot in the book about how much you appreciated or respected Midnight Oil's 10 to 1 album. Why did you yeah. never work with Midnight Oil? They were a great guitar band. It would have made sense. Uh, I, I, we, 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 we were slated to. When I was made head of A&R at Warner Brothers, they were on a label called Powderworks, and they were looking for a big major to go to, and it was out of Sony. Uh, they were called CBS at the time, I think. Out of Sony and out of Warner Brothers. And so I, I had a chat. I even went on tour with the Oils, and I spoke to Peter a lot. And, uh, and we said, you know, and, and they wanted to do a deal. And uh, they said, yeah, and, but as long as you can produce the album, we'll, we'll do it. And I said, yeah, sure. Fuck yeah, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. And then so then I went back to Sydney after being on tour with them. And then the manager, Gary Morris, is always a crazy guy. He said, look, I've got another band called Spy vs. Spy. I know you want to do the Midnight Oil album. Midnight Oil want to do it with you. So I want you to sign Spy vs. Spy as well. And, I, and to me, Spy vs. Spy were okay, but they're a B band. They weren't an A band. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what, Gary, I can't do that. I, I you know, it goes against my grain. It's, it wouldn't be honest of me to do that, just to do that. I, I, it's, yes, I understand it's a good marketing decision, but I think that in the end, I, I'd love to do the Midnight Oil album, love to work with them, and I'd love them to be on the label. But you know, I, I just think it's unfair to ex- expect me to sign a Spy versus Spy to get them on so, so I've got Midnight Oil and yeah. I do the album I think it, you know they've already said to me is you, you've got to do the album and I've agreed to that and I wanted to anyway but for you to come in the last you know when we start to talk business that you need Spy versus Spy signed and I don't you know I, I, I don't want to 
that's not where I'd want to concentrate my energies. It's like I was saying to you earlier on, when the, when the president of the US, uh, a record company gets, uh, he has to release this. The A&R guy in New York has to release some Australian thing because of contractual things. You don't want to know about that. Mm-hmm. It was the same with me with Spy versus Spy. And so um, so the deal was pulled. I said, no, I'm, I'm, I can't do that. And he wouldn't relent, so I said, that's that. And so they took the same deal and signed to... Um, to um, Sony with, with Midnight Oil and Spy vs. Spy, but without me as a producer. And I knew after I finished um, after I finished uh, Shabu Shabar, I listened to Ten to One, mm-hmm. and the change is exactly what I was saying that needed to happen. More, what I was saying, talked to Peter about was high backing vocals. Mm-hmm. Always, you're going to need these high backing vocals because you can't sing. Mm-hmm. But you do express well. You express yeah. really well, but you don't sing in the classical sense. You know, you express right. yourself. There's nothing wrong with that. It's perfect. But you need we need to balance out the high harmony. And Rob Hurst just happened to have that. Yeah. Anyway, so that appeared, and then and afterwards, outside, I'd gone out, and then I got Nick Lorne, uh and to do it, and do uh, the album, and he. Uh, and our mates, uh, he was smart enough to pick up the high harmony thing, and he was also brilliant at editing two-inch tape. Mm-hmm. I mean, all that stuff is so edited, or that, that 10 to 1 album. Sure. But it sounds amazing, you know. Um, it did a great job on it. And I knew when I listened to that album that that, that guy would be producing the next In Excess album. Yeah. yeah. Swing, which he didn't do a good job on, unfortunately. But it's, um, I mean, the first thing that happened after Swing was done, the, the, uh, they, the band came back to Australia and hired a studio for two days and got me in there to listen to it. Mm-hmm. And say, so, what do you think? And I said, yeah, it's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, just put the right running wood together. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Original yeah. sin, mate. That's going to that's gonna kill. Right. Are you kidding me? And I mean, he said, oh, yeah, but no, Nick didn't do that. He did all the other stuff. And I said, yes, it's got that Nick sound, but you've got the tracks, man. You've got, yeah. you've got original sin. You've got, there was two or three others, you know. Sure. So anyway, but that's yeah. beside the point. Yeah, that's a great album. I, I actually think I, I think Listen Like Thieves might be their most consistent front to back. Yeah, probably is. Satisfying. Album. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I think so. I think they, they'd gone from where I with Shabu and and then a first meeting with Chris, and so they still had that freedom of um, mm-hmm. a, a newness that, that that they could bring to the table together. You yeah. know, with yeah. Chris. I mean, Chris Thomas chased them down big time. Chased them all over the world. Really? Wow. To, Oh yeah, chased them to Tokyo, chased them in, in everywhere yeah. just to get big. And yeah, I couldn't compete with that. <laughs> right, no way. Right. I mean, I, I had to, I had to fight off um, what's his name from the Divinals. We ended up doing stuff with him anyway. Um, at the others, uh, did Blondie? Um, hmm. Did did the knack? Um, uh, Stasium at Stasium, right? No, 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 the engineer. No, 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 the, oh. the producer who did, who did Blondie. I'm looking at Mike up, Chapman. Right? That's it. Yes, Mike Chapman. Mike Chapman. Yes. Uh, well, he came out, he flew out to see, you know, one of the early gigs of Divinals. And I heard that he was coming, so I made sure I was standing at the bar right next to him <laughs> you know, while he was listening. Because mm-hmm. I, I didn't want anyone stealing my act away from me at that point before I'd done the first album. But, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so last question. Where does a, mm-hmm. where does a legendary producer go from here? In this current musical climate, you can't be the person you were, and you probably don't get to just sit back and live off being a legend 
and that status for the no, rest no, of your life. No, so no, what no, do you I, need well, to do? I'll give you a microcosm. Uh, I've done the last two Bad Dreams albums in Australia, which are really very hot band. Not so much album-wise, but live-wise, they're okay. becoming one of the top acts in Australia. So I'm, you know, still current. Um, I did an album last week, or I was two weeks ago. I finished off a record for a new band that's just been formed, name being changed, but on the direction of Universal in the US, who were looking for stuff, whether it's going to be used as demos or released. Who cares? I don't give a shit. I got a mix this Saturday with another uh, for another US track that I have to do. Um, I'm also this year I've been made um, uh, the H.C. Coombs Fellow. I've been awarded the H.C. Coombs Fellowship at, at Australian National University. So I've got various um, you know, things to perform there, pieces to make, uh, lectures, um, various duties to perform. It's a, it's a fantastic honour to get the, the Coombs. Good, it only good. comes around every every three years and wow. it's the number one university in Australia okay. and, and it's an academic qualification so it's amazing nice. um, so yeah I, I'm not you know there are, I, I go to the gym at least three or four times a week good I okay. play I, I try and walk 18 holes of golf at least once a week good okay um, but the days uh, of you know per diems and travelling all over the place and big royalty yeah, checks sure. and, you know yeah, you talk I about those bands but Unfortunately, uh, I don't know that there, it's even possible for a band to no. truly take over the world like NXS did. Well, yeah. well I, look, in, in, in a producer's case, like in Australia, and as an Australian producer, uh-huh. I would say I'm the only Australian producer whose who's job has done this job for a living for a whole career. Hmm. Wow. I really would. And, okay. and I'm still doing it. You know, I'm, I'm in the studio, I've got two albums on hold. I go to France and work with a Jesus Vault. I've done two albums with them down in Loire Valley over the last few years. I go to Istanbul and work with uh, Turkish acts. I love working overseas. That's mm-hmm. fucking great. I love Good. it. Okay. In the old days, it would be, as you say, per diems, first-class air tickets for the US, sure. best studios in LA, big per diem that you never spent because you had food coming anyway. Mm-hmm. And decent advance, good royalty, but those days are over. You know, mm-hmm. they're clearly gone. Mm-hmm. And 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 the producer, of my style of producer, who's as much into the technicalities as the music. You know, because mm-hmm. now I have an, a full-time engineer, so I, you know, I concentrate arrangement and everything else. But he uses my techniques, mm-hmm. or, or improves on my techniques. Or, but for example, my engineer about the last twenty years won't touch a, a, a he said you have to set up the guitar mics mm-hmm. you just do mm-hmm. and so I do I do it every time and it's good that I do because yeah. I know it's right and, yeah. and I'm very you know it's, at that stage it's all about phase correction tiny technical terms I'm not talking about semi-quavers and crotchets here that's for the band and mm-hmm. and I, even then I don't talk in that sort of terms with them we talk arrangements you know and if we need to change arrangements after they've played it then we look at changing arrangements but most importantly, I look for melody and feel. Okay. Because the beautiful thing now is when you're looking for melody and feel, digital equipment is at a point where you can edit the arrangement back into shape. You can lose half a chorus if you want to. Mm-hmm. You can get rid of that shitty middle eight. You can put get rid of the bullshit little bit that's in the bridge there. Why is that there? Why is that there? Mm-hmm. Get rid of it. Bang. And you can do that now as long as you've got feel that supports a good melody. It can be a hard rock feel. It can be a soft 
classical feel. I don't care what it is. Right. But a feel that supports a melody. Again, that's why I don't never use click tracks. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Um, one of my listeners asked me to ask you, his name's Paul Hicks, he's Australian. Um, mm-hmm. He said, "Does do you, Mark, uh, think Australian bands have much of an awareness of the way Aussie music has evolved and where it comes from, or are they all just following their own muse. So when you work with these young bands, do you, do they seem aware of like Australian rock and its legacy or are they sort of creating well, something Well, in a way they do. Okay. Because there was a, there was a freakish period from the seventies until the early nineties where there were so many live, all, all the big pubs, you know, where you go and people go, you know, when you go to nightclubs, you go to pubs and they'd have these massive auditoriums in there. Instead of, and these days they have poker machines. But then they had beer barns where all the big bands would play, you know, every pub. But you'd see the Angels, Cold Chisel, Split Ends, you know, any night of the week you could see any of these big bands because they're playing these big places. So everyone got to hone their craft here and hone it in front of sort of big pub band crowds and play live and do all that. Where in America, it's a little different. It, 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 it's a lot of rehearsing and writing done before and then rehearsing. And then if we can get a gig, we'll get, we try and get a pay for play somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's been like that for as long as I can remember. It's never been a, mm-hmm. a, a you know, you, the colleges were active, obviously, but, and the nightclubs are active, but there's never any big place that was jumping all night, you know, every night a week with a new band, with a big band. Mm-hmm. And this allowed Australian bands to really get their chops together because they'd be playing from that period, 70s, right through the 80s, they could be playing three, four nights a week if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. And then they'd have tours on top of that. And the tours, every time an album come out, it'd be a 52-day tour. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And so that that aspect, it might sound weird, but traveling that amount of distance, that much of Australia, that's what produces the Australian sound and the ability to do so. What also produces the Australian sound, you got to remember, it's like we're like a sieve. Mm-hmm. Where you know in our left ear is coming everything from from uh, Europe, and our right ear everything's coming from the USA, yeah. and it comes filtered down to here. So we're getting influenced by everything, yeah. as well as our local stuff. Okay, and we also you know so it's that's why some you know ABBA broke in Australia first, for example. Mm-hmm. As we were talking earlier, Doctor Hook broke here first. Right. There's there's a more of a sense of um, I don't know. You know, you know, I remember Bertha Perry having this conversation with me, head of Capitol Records, he called me up when he was out here in Australia one day. And we were talking about production. I said, look, we can do all those slick sounding records, but we don't want to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know where the reverb button is, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, you know it, it's, it's, we can do all that and make it perfect, but we don't want to make these perfect records. We're after changing emotion in people. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, Bette Midler can do it to a click track and Barbara Streisand could do it to a click track mm-hmm. but they're very rare right. we're doing a country of you know 15 million people at the time you know so we've got to express ourselves and mm-hmm. be ourselves and be what we are yes we can copy that but we don't want it yes we are influenced by certain sounds and certain things that come out of there but not so you know but it's 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 not you know we don't want to sound like you two yeah right. we don't want to sound, you know what I mean and yeah. Okay. Oh, we don't want to be the next you two either. Yeah. We want to. Be, we want to be the next in excess. Yeah. That's what we want. No, I'm talking about in excess. Sure. Of you course. Know, I know what, what they yeah. want. Yeah. yeah. And I think so. A lot. A lot of it's got to do with attitude. Now, as far as recognizing the fact of what 
it means in world terms. I think it's these in the last 10 years with internet, social media, etc., and accessibility both ways in Australia and overseas. Yes, there is acknowledgement. Yeah, well, you know, they have, you know, certain acts have made a difference that weren't really famous at the time, but they certainly made a difference internationally. And and also happy, you know, I remember going to Paris for the first time in 1980 and seeing this uh, six by ten foot poster advertising ACDC playing at at um, Olympia. Wow, blew me away because yeah. that's the first time I'd ever been over to Paris. And then, then you got an idea of just how big ACDC was. Yeah, you know, I really had no, I knew they were, I knew they were reaching, they were touring around the world, but they weren't number one at the time. But then you yeah. see these big fucking posters, and you wait a minute, this is serious, mum. You yeah. know, and this is this is huge. And so, yeah, as far as our, the, that that kind of legacy thing, or what did Australian music do? It's just part of the menu that's come down from mm. uh, Europe and, and, and America uh, and and the constant playing that was happening, not so much now but for that golden period, as they call it, mm-hmm. that I happened to be around for, which is, mm-hmm. I'm very lucky and pleased I was. And that's yeah. what I said, I'm still working. I think that, you know, that is, yes, there are people that has been recognised in a industry sense to a degree but uh, i don't think it needs to be that much okay because what okay. we all what we what what our I mean, my motto is make world music yeah true i don't make music for australia i want to make and even though like, bad dreams if you ever get to listen to them it's the first australian band i've, I've ever worked with they've got an australian accent and sounds fucking great really sounds, okay bad dreams cool. Bad dreams, too easy and dreams in 38. Got it. Got my knapsack on my back, and I know what I've got to do. Gonna drink on this cup of meat, pull my boots on, walk right through. Comet's path, soul flare, acid on acid, columns of air that lift me gently. Away from here, marooned in time, but always near. And when I look around, I see sacred ground. When I hear the sound, I'm on sacred ground. Bridges over, dusty dreams, injured freaks that look down on me. Roll out the carpet. Now we'll go, the wind is settled down, dust is blown across the plains and through the ocean. The first album has got two uh, gay guys on the front cover sort of against each other. It's a, it's a rock album, hmm. and but it's it's a really it's really interesting lyrically. It's fucking great. And the passion okay. with which it's sung and it's played, it's fucking great. And, and, and you listen to it and say, yep, that's Australian. Really? And you know by the accent, because the accent, it's very rare you hear a really broad Australian accent. Because usually it sends cringes down my spine, yeah. you know, when I've heard other people do it. But when this guy does it, it sounds, fuck, that sounds good. Cool. Okay. All right. So we'll check out Bad, Bad Dreams. Dreams. Okay. The first album. The first album. They've got two, but particularly the first album. It's called Dogs at Play, correct? That's the one. Yep. That's okay. the one. That yep. album. Okay. Please check it out. And and in excess, uh, YouTube uh, live at Wembley. Got it. I got a list going right here. Well, thank Just you, Mark. So too. For, what's that? 
I said, just those two is all you got. Oh, well, That's all you need. I, uh, you know, in no, whatever, one from the past and one from where I am now. So that's, that's, sort of... <laughs> that's true. The thing that mm. I took away mostly from your book was, like I said earlier, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on music. I'm a big music geek. I especially listen to a lot mm. of alternative rock. And it never occurred to me that there were so many bands happening in Australia that I was not aware of, but should have been. And so I feel like in the last couple of weeks, I've got like a, I mean, I know Cold Chisel. I know, I knew these bands. I have some of their stuff, but I've got a mountain of music mm. to go back and rediscover and dig deeper into. And that's all thanks to you. Mm. So thank you, well, Mark, thank for you talking so much. to me. Well, it's been a pleasure. And I hope your listeners uh, gain some pleasure about what we've talked about, because I certainly have. Good. Me too. And uh, I could keep you for days, but I, um, I really appreciate you giving me this time. And hopefully it reminds people that, to go check out stuff they didn't know, learn some things, check out the book, whatever it might be. So yeah, exactly, exactly. Everyone's got a choice, and it's it just you know, I just as I said, it's it's all an interesting tale, and and it's um you know I I've loved every every minute. Of it. Well, not every minute, of course, you have your down bits, but you know I'm blessed. I'm yeah, the, I'm so sure. lucky to have had. You know, when I look back at what I've been able to do, places I've been, when I signed up for this. No one told me about I'd be flying around the world for a million times, visiting Istanbul or Anchorage, Alaska, or you know right. Tennessee or Nashville, all those places. No one told me that, yeah. and um, it's been amazing. I've been so lucky. You have been. All right, there you have it, Mark Opitz. Tons of good stuff in there. So I'm so glad we got to talk about it in excess because that might be the closest I'll ever get to being able to discuss them on this show since none of the guys in the band will do very many interviews. Um, but I want to I want to posit something to you that I've been thinking about lately. I think Michael Hutchins might be the second best frontman in rock history. Tell me what you guys think. I think it's probably widely accepted that Freddie Mercury is the best. But I wonder if Michael Hutchins is second. Because I watched that video that Mark gave me the hard sell on, the live from Wembley. It is incredible. It is absolutely them at their peak. And there is just nobody sexier and more fit to be a, a frontman of an excellent rock band than Michael Hutchins. So tell me what you think. If you disagree, I want to know why. And if you agree with me, let me know so we can bond over it. Now, let me tell you real quick, next week's guest is one of the bands we talked about in this conversation. It is Dave Faulkner of the Hoodoo Gurus, and Dave gives his side to this story. I did not plan it that way. When I interviewed Mark, I didn't know that I'd be talking to Dave. It all sort of just happened, and it wasn't a matter of pitting anyone against each other. Dave and I had a long conversation about his entire career, but we talk about his side of this story and what happened with Mark. Very respectfully, but he gives his side of the story. So come back next week and listen to my conversation with Dave. I think what, I think the Hoodoo Gurus are one of the greatest bands of all time. Also, speaking of great bands, another band that I discovered while uh, researching Mark that we didn't get a chance to talk about is this band Noiseworks. And I love them. And this is probably my favorite Noiseworks song right here. It's called Love Somebody. Please check out Noiseworks. It's just, it's in keeping with that melodic but gritty rock and roll that Mark is so good at doing. 
let's see. I think that covers everything, okay? You know the drill by now. You can find us on Facebook and like our page. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And huge thanks, as always, to my right-hand man and partner in crime, Yan the Man. He had a lot of work to do on this one, and he did it well. Thank you so much, buddy, for everything that you do. We will talk to you guys next Tuesday.